welcome to the Truth Simply Put, the teaching broadcast vehicle of the Basilea Commission. On today's teaching by Alexander Victor, God's Word rightly divided in the light of Christ, who is the central theme of the entire scriptures, will come with simplicity, precision, clarity, and power to instruct, admonish, edify, and build you up into the full measure of the stature of Christ. Now, let's dive straight in. Are you ready today? Okay, so in scripture, there are literalisms, right? I've said over and over that things and people are real. Scripture. Jacob is real. Ishmael is real. A guy existed called Ishmael. A city existed called Sodom. Twinned with another city called Gomorrah. Gomorrah. <laughs> right. A man actually walked the earth called Noah. Okay? There are literalisms in scripture. Things that are real. Places that are real. Elements that are real. People that are real. Mount Sinai. Mount Gerizim. Um, Jebus, which became known as the city of David, Jerusalem. Yeah? It was the city of the Jebusites, remember? David conquered it eventually. And then on the hill builds the city of David, known as Jerusalem, which was the capital of or became the capital of Judea eventually when Solomon died. So there's lots of literal things in scripture. There's also things that are absolute symbolisms. They're not literal. You must understand that in scripture. For instance, the parable of rich man and Lazarus. Rich man symbol. That particular rich man didn't exist. Lazarus symbol. That particular Lazarus didn't exist. Unlike the Lazarus who was a friend, brother of Mary and Martha and friend of Jesus, who Jesus raised back to human life in John 11. That's not the Lazarus that had sores all over him. It couldn't be. Right? So the Lazarus with the rich man, that Lazarus was never in existence. Because he was just symbolical. It was just allegorical. It was just parabolical. It was a parable. Are you here? Abraham in that parable doesn't exist. Now, you, it sounds familiar. Why would Abraham not exist? Why then is Lazarus not existing? So Abra Abraham in the parable of of the rich man and Lazarus is just a symbol of the place of eternal judgment. And Jesus borrowed Abraham because they understood Abraham as their father, as their patriarch. Does that make sense? Every Jew understands that Abraham is their father. Does that make sense? So Jesus borrows from that to draw up the details or the elements of his parable. 
Big divide between you and here and us and you doesn't exist. It's all symbolic. Yeah, there's nothing in scripture that suggests that you can sit in heaven, look across and just see hell. Yeah. It's either that hell will melt heaven or hell will freeze over. So, you know, you cannot jump and cross from us to you and you to us. You know, that's all symbolism. Do you understand that now? Doesn't exist. Didn't exist. Prodigal son didn't exist. Parable. Luke 15. And Jesus spake unto them a parable, saying, Lost coin. Lost sheep. Treasure buried in a field. Remember the other parable? The kingdom of God is like a man who found a treasure in a field. After he had found it, he buried it. <laughs> Love that parable. To secure it. And they went out of the field and sold all he had. And bought the land. To get the treasure. I Love it. The unjust judge didn't exist. The woman who... Badgered him until she got what she wanted. It exists. So there's a lot of absolute symbolisms and allegories in scripture. Absolute, absolute. The book of Revelation is packed full with symbolisms. Packed full, right down to 666. Packed. Most people that are looking for 666 will not see it when it comes. They are in it. They will not know. Because you think Satan will come now and bring a, a, a printing machine that is actually printing 666 on your forehead. You would already know. Mark of the beast. Mark of the beast. Mark of the beast. Who is the beast? Who is the beast in Revelation? Why is that beast different from the Antichrist? Different from the dragon? Why is the mark of the beast suddenly the same as the mark of the Antichrist? When the beast is there and the Antichrist is there. And the dragon is there. And then Hades is there. As a being. And death is there as a being. Because it's death and Hades as entities are cast into the lake of fire. Along with the dragon, the false prophet, and the beast. So you must be careful not to just take allegories and turn them to literal and start to run with them. So a lot of allegories, a lot of symbolisms in scripture, in Revelation. Lots. And those things are not necessarily literal. Are you following me now? Thirdly, there are literalisms that are symbolic and that's important for instance you see um the story of 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 isaac and ishmael right as long as isaac and ishmael were in the same house there was no rest it wasn't i wasn't referring to physical rest i was referring to hebrews 4 rest he that has believed he that has has entered his rest and rested from his works as God rested from his. 
I wasn't referring to rest as in peace of mind. Oh, let the house be quiet. No. Oh, no. As long as you have Ishmael. Why, why, where did I borrow that from? Galatians 4. That shows you that Ishmael and Isaac were two covenants. And Mount Sinai and Mount Zion were two women. Who were Sarah and Hagar. Law and grace. Or grace and law respectively. So is there a real dude called Isaac? Yes. Real dude called Ishmael? But then there's covenants of the bondwoman and of the freeborn. So by the time we say Ishmael and Isaac cannot have rest, the average Christian will go, ha, ha, but are you not saying that they were in strife? So are you telling me, Pastor, that Isaac and Ishmael could not make up? Isn't that showing that the church is in a bad place? That you cannot, two brothers, <laughs> two brothers cannot co coexist happily in the same house by the same father just because they had different mothers. Are you, not, are you not supporting strife in the church? Especially with young people that you're pastoring. How can you say Isaac and Ishmael who were pastors? As long as they're in the same house, could not have rest. So Ishmael must go. What is that teaching young people? I love it. Because somebody has gotten trapped in the Bible story of Ishmael and Isaac and has joined the sad bandwagon of Christians that feel like the Bible is something anybody can interpret according to their personal interpretation. That's what's responsible for all this nonsense. The Bible is not a book you read and interpret as you like. It's not, it's not a novel that you read that has alternate endings. On the days of DVD, if you bought an actual original DVD of like, from, for instance, like epic movies like Training Day, um, 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 what's his name now? Denzel Washington's Training Day. And there's, and there's alternate endings. The movie ends. And then you can go into the menu and select an alternate ending so the movie can end another way. So people that were saying, oh, but why did he just, why did they just spray him like that? There's another ending. And then there's a director's cut ending. So you can have like three or four alternate endings if you bought an original DVD or Blu-ray back in the day. So if you're thinking, ah, oh, I would have liked for it to end like this, where we thought about you and we created the ending for you. Because ultimately, we must make sure the box office rakes in all the cash we can get. And let's not divide them along opinions where we can create different endings for that suit everybody. Does that make sense? And so people come into the scriptures and start to read the Bible as, as, the, as, as though they can give it whatever ending they like. Read the Bible and say, the way I understand it, my understanding. No, the Bible is not written for you to write your understanding into it. The way I understand it is that, no, the Bible should be understood the way it was meant to be understood when it was written by those that wrote it. My opinion is, you know, you know, we can look at the Bible in different ways and God will tell us different things. No, sir. No, I agree, we can look at one scripture and continue to glean out of that scripture everything God intended to say from that scripture. But we cannot read something into the scripture that is a pure conjecture, pure fabrication of your, your opinion. Can't do that to scripture. Can't do that to scripture. Do you understand this now? So there's a lot of, of uh, 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 literalisms that are symbolic in scripture. Um, 
And some of them are Cain and Abel, by faith, Abel. Jesus actually uses that a lot. Another favorite of Jesus is Jonah. Was there a Jonah? Yes. Was there Nineveh? Yes. So it was real. Tarshish was real. Joppa was real. Nineveh or the Assyrians was real. The fish. Oh, fish was real, baby. Fish was real. It was real. But as literal as that was, and it has its place, it was also symbolic. And nobody knew until Jesus comes and starts to say, no sign will be given them on unless the sign of Jonah. So all of Jonah's experience, as literal as it was, was for to be a sign. Does that make sense? Yeah, it was to be a sign. And that's profound. So if you read all Jonah's story from Jonah, and you don't look at Jonah in the light of the entire scriptures, you will not realize that Jonah's story was not about Jonah. And you preach a series on Jonah and surviving the storm. Weathering the fish. What to do when you are swallowed? <laughs> you preach all kinds of stuff on Jonah and miss the fact that Jonah's story was not about Jonah. And that's why you must learn the full counsel of God. There's, there's Esau and Jacob. The blessing through grace through faith. With the, with the power of mediation and a little bit of a blessing which actually was more of a curse through the works of the law self-effort there's joseph again lots of symbolisms in joseph's story he's, he's, he goes down into the pit he's there down in the pit for three days he goes out he's there one prisoner tells him to remember him. Another one, he says, you're going to lose your life. And the symbolisms go on and on and on. Joseph is eventually brought out of that. And he is the savior of his people. Introduces a new day. And then when he's, when he's exalted... The king hands over all authority to him. Remember? The Pharaoh, who was literally a god in Egypt, hands over all authority to the exalted Joseph. You know, you know whatever Joseph says is law. It pleased Pharaoh that in Joseph all the fullness. goes on and on and on and on. We're not, we're not talking Joseph today. It's one message, just different actors. Uh, one message. Beautiful. There's Ruth, of course, we know that. What about the house, one of our favorites. There's Ruth, there's Naomi, there's Boaz. I'm calling people that were literal and were symbolic. And then there's elements like oil. What oil signified, what it symbolized. Is this literal oil? There's also what oil signified. Unfortunately, the church is trapped in the symbol and they rejected the substance. While some unfortunately argue 
that the symbol still holds sway in spite of the manifestation of the substance. Food is another literal thing that is highly symbolic in the scriptures. Food. We'll look at some of that today. Bread. It's a big one. But there's, there's bread and then there's bread. So when you see those things in scripture, a, a thorough Bible student must contextually establish what this thing means. Does that make sense? Another big one which we're looking at today is water. Water. A huge symbolic element in scripture. Well. So I wrote here, the literal are not always symbolic. Just that the symbolic are not always literal. It is in the place of diligent study on a contextual case-by-case basis that the distinctions and differences are established. Establishing this distinction or difference between what is literal and what is symbolic is very, very important to ensure that vital truths are not lost when a certain text of scripture is not accurately interpreted. So things I've taught before. So this brings us to my, my, starts to bring us into my talk today. So John, the writer of John's gospel, the beloved, not the Baptist. John the Baptist is a major theme in John's gospel, but he didn't write it. Do you understand that now? So don't let the Johns confuse you. In fact, if you look at scriptures carefully, there's at least three Johns. Yeah, there's John the Baptist, there's John the Beloved, who was the son of Zebedee, and then there was also John the brother of Jesus. And one of them is actually even believed to have written one of the epistles, first, second, third John. First John is believed more to have been written by John the brother of Jesus, um, who was known as John the Evangelist. Um, even though its writing style is very, very similar to that of John the Beloved. Which would not be strange since they both were with Jesus. So it makes no difference to me. This is consistent with the doctrine of Jesus. But just so you know, that it's not John the Baptist that wrote John. Because John has a talk about John the Baptist. So, <laughs> so John the Beloved has one clear aim when he's writing John's gospel. To prove that the word that was in the beginning is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That was his primary aim. And thereby introducing him as light, as salvation, as life for those that will believe. And also very crucially, he wrote John to establish that Jesus is greater. Can we say with me, Jesus is greater? And that's very, very important. Because coming off of last week's teaching, you cannot put the servant and the son on the same platform. Do you remember that? You cannot. You cannot have Moses and Jesus, and you cannot have Moses relevant in the days of the son. That's a horrible, malicious theology. Hebrews 1.1, God. That's the constant. God. 
That's the subject. Then he progresses. Who at various times and in various ways spoke when? Through to the fathers by. So when our fathers there simply meant our ancestors. Okay? Our ancestors, our, our patriarchs. Those that came before us. How did God speak to them by the prophets? In times past, at various ways. Various ways. No, I, I need New King James, please. Time passed to the fathers by the prophets has in these, someone's saying these last days, spoken to us by the Son, and it doesn't mention by the Son as an addition to the prophets. That's why it takes time to explain the differences in time. That's verse 1 again, Hebrews 1 and 1. God, who at various times and in various ways, in time past, spoke. In time past, spoke. He's not speaking to us now in the way that he spoke in time past. That's the whole idea of verse 1. At various times, in various ways, in time past, spoke to our ancestors through the prophets. In time past, has now in these times, verse 2, spoken to us, not by the prophets, through whom he spoke to our fathers, but has spoken to us in these times by the Son. The Son, therefore, replaces the prophets. You don't bring Jesus to compliment Moses. Jesus, to help what Elijah said. That's horrible theology. Moses spoke. Servant, you saw it in Hebrews last week. Servant spoke. Elijah spoke. Elisha. You now bring Jesus, the Son of God, God, to help give clarity to Moses, shed light on Elijah. No, Jesus is he of which they speak. Let me use King James for you. Mm -mm. He's he of whom they spoke. They testify to him. They testify of him. Not the other way around. So the advent of the son's voice retired the relevance of the prophet's voice. That's what happened on the Mount of Transfiguration in Matthew 17. Where God spoke from heaven and said, this is my beloved son. He spoke in the presence of the law and the prophets. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. The next three words are most important. Hear ye him. In, in the Greek it actually means... This is the one you should hear. Hear ye him in English sounds like you're going to hear him and them. But in the original, hear ye him was a distinctive distinguishing from them. There are three people, there are three voices, there are three laws, there are three voices, there's three uh, uh, systems, there's three. This is the one, it's my beloved son. Not Moses, not Elijah. This is the one whom I'm well pleased. Not Moses, not Elijah. This is the one you should hear. So he 
glorified the voice of the son and faded out the voice of the law and the prophet. So Hebrews will say what was taken away was fading away and is now faded away. Does that make sense? They don't coexist on the same platform. So John was very particular about that in his gospel to show that Jesus is greater. And that was a problem. That's why it's a stumbling block. It was a problem for the Jews to believe that somebody that just came down from Nazareth of which nothing good comes is greater. And I, 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 I'm, I'm, I'm going to get to UTG series 3 soon. We'll explore thoughts on Jesus, the divinity of Jesus. Who is this Jesus? And I'll share with you my findings on scripture, which may not be popular or even may not even be in existence. The result of my studies in scripture about the divinity and humanity of Jesus will probably rock the boat more than people that say that Jesus is not God. And will also do a great deal of damage for Trinitarians. The God in three persons, people. Because there are simple questions I ask that cannot be answered. God in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. So there is a separate entity called the Spirit. God the Spirit, right? And all pre-Christian agrees. There's a separate entity called God the Spirit or the Holy Spirit. Okay, but then Jesus, who is supposed to be God the Son, says, and therefore we must believe him, that God is Spirit. If God is Spirit, and that is God the Father, and then there's now God the Spirit, who is the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is what this is. And then, and then God is Spirit. I mean, God has to be Spirit. Because he dwells in unapproachable light whom no one has seen or can see. That's why Jesus gives visibility to God. So we can't doubt Jesus when he says God is spirit. Scriptures, even if Jesus did not say it, scriptures are loud enough to show that God is inanimate. He's spirit. That's why we can call him mother God and he's not offended. Because God is neither, God is neither male nor female. He's spirit. So by calling him mother God, we attach human attributes that capture what he does in his capacity as God. Of course, the unenlightened feel like you have insulted God. And that's how you know that they are, they are very, very misogynist in their nature. Yeah. Only a misogynist will be troubled by the concept of God being mother. But he doesn't mind he stands, and of all analogies, God stands and says, can a mother forget her suckling child? God. In Isaiah. Isaiah 49, I think. Can a, can a mother forget her suckling child? Yeah, she may, but I. I in what context? It cannot be I as father at this point. No! Because he just used an analogy of a mother. What's wrong with us? Can a mother forget her suckling child? Ah, yes, yeah, she may, but even if she does, I, your real mother. And people sit down and start to argue. Go and sit down and be taught. You don't want to sit down and be taught. Two hour service is too long. How do you want to learn? 
an apostle on YouTube. So God is spirit, but then there's the Holy Spirit. And it's not two spirits. And but but then Paul in Romans 8 makes clear in verse 9 that the Spirit of Christ is the Spirit of God. So when Jesus was on the earth, he was anointed with the Spirit. And that Spirit is the Spirit of God. God is Spirit. There are three persons. Two spirits and one man, one man, one human man. And then we have to go through great lengths to prove either postulation. And I already have a problem with that. I don't really have a problem with what you can't just pick the scriptures and see. Because don't forget, my assignment is easy. The truth, simply put. I'm not trying to be the most intelligent and most philosophically sounding pastor. You will not learn anything. If I came to you at the level of my knowledge, you will learn nothing. <laughs> That's the honest truth. You will learn nothing if I came at you at the level of what I know. But then I to break it down and make it simply put. Because you, if you look at it critically, you realize that that's why they always wanted to stone Jesus. And you see that later today if you can get there. Oh, other people argue, but Jesus never said he was God. If you were Jesus, would you open your mouth and say it? In that kind of hostile environment. Jesus never said he was God. Well, it turns out Jesus never said he wasn't. And I'm just, I'm just teasing you. Because in Revelation, an angel appears to John. And John wants to worship. And the angel tells John, don't worship me. Which is consistent with the worship of angels that Paul deals with as a supplement. In Colossians 2. As highlighted in Hebrews, to which of the angels did he say? So in Revelation, angel appearing and John wants to worship. The angel says, hey, don't do that. Worship God. The angel didn't even say worship Jesus. He said worship God. For the testimony of Jesus. Worship God for the testimony. So he says worship God. Worship God. But he, the testimony of Jesus. Is the spirit of prophecy. And then Jesus is on the earth. And there's not a single time on record. Jonas, that, do you know how many times people worship Jesus on the earth? So many. Jesus did not correct anyone once. There's not a single time he told any of them that failed to worship him. Don't worship me. In fact, Thomas looks at him when he didn't believe and then he eventually showed up. And Thomas screamed, my Lord and my God. Jesus did not correct him. That makes Jesus a fraud. To be receiving worship that is not due him. Even on the earth, before he had even been exalted. Because the bulk of the worship Jesus received, he received before the cross. Before he was given the name. If you link that to Paul saying, who considered equality with God not something to be grasped? Or who considered it not robbery to be equal with God? And then you see where Jesus will tell them, I'm the son of God. And they will pick stones to stone Jesus because they said he is equal with God. Jesus said son of God. The Jews 
called it blasphemy because the Jews understood that by Jesus saying son of God, Jesus implied he was of the same quality as God and therefore he's God. The word in Greek is isos, from which you get the isometric equations in math and chemistry. The word is, is the Greek word, isos. It means of the same exact quality and standard as. So we get the word isometric or isometric from. So when he, when he said son of God, the Jews heard he said he was God. And that's what they had the problem with because you came from Nazareth. So they already had the problem with his suggestion that he was son of God. They knew what that already meant. You now get up and say, I am actually God. Jesus will not have lasted two weeks. <laughs> but John's gospel argues vehemently for the superiority of the word made flesh. The superiority of Jesus Christ the word over the patriarchs. There's no patriarch. Have you noticed? As I'm saying it now, think about it. There's no patriarch that survives John's onslaught in relation to Jesus. John takes on Moses. He takes on Jacob. He takes on Abraham. He takes on Elijah. He takes on John the Baptist. All of them in John's gospel. Trashes all of them and leaves the son standing. Because his argument was for the superiority of the son. Does that make sense? John 20, 31. John 20, 31. John writes and says, But these are written, the things he captured, are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that believing, you may have life in his name. That's the purpose of writing. In John 1, he argues for the word being Christ, made flesh. John 1, right through 14. In 29, he announces that he comes to take away the sin of the world. And again, in 34, it shows 34. Again, John 1, 34. I have seen and testified. This is John, the beloved, saying, I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. Yeah? Quoting John the Baptist. And then in John 3, 27 through to 36, John 3, John answered and said, a man can receive nothing. This is John the Baptist now. A man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. Keep going. We're going all the way to 36. You yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I've been sent before him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom is the best man. That's, that's how John considered himself. Who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled. John was saying, I didn't come to offer you anything. I just came to prepare and cheer for the bridegroom. I'm the bridegroom's friend that goes before him. Is everything ready? Is the gen on? Has the band started playing? Is the, is the priest in the church? No, that's the, that's the best man's job. Are we all ready to receive the bridegroom and all that? So it's like, my joy is fulfilled because I've heard the sound of the bridegroom. Does that make sense now? That analogy? Keep going. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes up from above is above all. He who is of the earth is earthly and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. And what he has seen and heard, 
that he testifies and that he testifies and no one receives his testimony. He who has received his testimony has certified that God is true. For he whom God has sent speaks the word of God, words of God, for God does not give the spirit by measure. The father loves the son and has given all things into his hand. This is John the Baptist talking of the bridegroom. And has given all things into his hand, 36 and Lazarus. He who believes in the son has everlasting life and he who does not believe the son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Now you're talking to people that have followed God all their life. This is not Gentiles. This is, this is Jews. And all they know is God. And all of a sudden you're telling them, trash everything you know about God. If you don't believe this dude, you have no life. Can you see how it was a big deal? Because for a Gentile, it's not too much of an issue. Gentiles have gods that they change like the clothes they wear. You know, yeah. Each season has a god. Each day has a god. Each appearance has a god. Each fruit has a god. Or in some cases, is a god. You know, the Gentiles, Gentiles liked God so much that they even built a monument in Ephesus to a, to a god they didn't know. Say to the unknown god. Just in case a, a, a god shows up and says, you missed one god. That's, that, that's for you, sir. Or ma. Or, or, or it, as the case may be. Just, just in case there's, you know, we have, we, have, we have created as many gods as possible. But just in case there's a god we missed. <laughs> and Paul then comes smartly and says, yes, yes, yes. That, that's our unknown god. That's the one I brought. <laughs> so for the Gentiles, it wouldn't have been a big deal. But for the Jew, spent all their life following God. And you say, if you don't believe this Jew, Joseph's son, you have no life. The wrath of God rests on you. So where does that place Moses? Exalted Moses. Where does that place Elijah? Where does that place Nehemiah and Ezra and the scribes? Where does that place all our life of devotion from our fathers? And what they missed was in time past. Are you following me now? So that's what John is arguing all through. John 5, 45 to 47. John 5, 45 to 47. Do not think I shall accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, in whom you trust. For if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. 47. But if you do not believe his writings, how would you? Read my words. John 6, 30 to 35. I'm just showing you the things... John um, hammered on or focused on. And then we'll get to my text for today. See where that takes us. Therefore they said to him, what sign will you perform then? That we may see it and believe you. <laughs> what work will you do? Our fathers ate the manna in the desert, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. <laughs> Quoting Psalms. Then Jesus said to them, most assuredly, I said to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven. Whoa. Can you imagine how breaking news that is? <laughs> because all through, you manna came from heaven. You ate it, you packed it. It killed you if you ate more for the Sabbath. 
And then Psalms, David wrote it. Give the manna from heaven. Then somebody just wakes up, 32-ish years old. And says, Moses did not give you the manna from heaven. I mean, you, I can imagine sometimes how sarcastic Jesus will sound. Just to imagine his face with his Jewish nose up. You know, Moses did not, Moses, <laughs> Moses did not give you the manna from heaven. Jesus too was, was a problem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was, a, <laughs> it was a problem. Yeah, this was a problem. I mean, how much more direct could he have sounded? Moses did not give you the bread from heaven. In other words, what Moses gave you? What bread from heaven? Ha! I mean, the, a stone is already ready. Yeah, stone is ready. Go on. Moses did not give you the bread from heaven. For the bread... Of God is He, not it. The bread of God is He who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said to Him, Lord, pay attention to this for where I'm going. They said to Him, Lord, give us this bread always. And then He said to them, I am the bread of life. Wow. I mean, He tried to preempt them by saying, The bread of heaven is He. Came down from heaven. Uh, and he says, Well, I am Tada. <laughs> I am the bread of life. Pay attention because there are eight times in John when Jesus says, I am. I'm coming to it. Keep going. And the Jews understood beyond the shadow of doubt. What the implication of a man saying I am was. These people that have recited the, the whole Torah. Exodus 3.14 is clear in their head. Okay, I've heard all this. I've seen fire. I've seen leprosy. I've seen, you know, a snake becoming a serpent. Serpent becoming a snake. Fire burning. The bushes not burning. Yeah, 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 yeah. You're going to deliver Israel. Yeah, that, that's all nice and good. Honky dory. No problem. Question. When I get to them and tell them all these things and show them all these things, who are they going to? When they ask me who sent me, who am I going to tell them sent me? And God said, tell them I am. The Jews' first submission of, of God, the first proprietary introduction of God to the Jew was I am. So when Jesus shows up and says I am, both Jesus and the Jews understand his invoking Exodus 3.14. I am. The bread of life. Because in Exodus 3, God told, I, I am. We added I am. That I am. For emphasis. I am is God's way of introducing. It's actually translated in the Hebrew. I will be whom and what I will be. That's actually what I am, that I am means. It's not so much a definitive as it is a blank check of the manifestation of the fullness of God. Does that make sense? That's why whenever men encountered God in the Old Testament, they would name the place or the God that met them after that encounter. So, 
Hagar said, Be'elahairoi. Be'er means well. Be'elahairoi, the one who sees me. So she called the place Be'elahairoi, the well of the one who sees me. For she said, I have seen the one who sees me and lived. Does that make sense? Jacob encountered that, that, that ladder, you know, going up and down, and he named the place. He said, God was here in this place, and I didn't know it. So he named the place Beth El. Beth is house. El is God. So basically, Beth El means house of God. When he was coming back after he had gotten Rachel, Leah, and all the sheep, and then he also survived Esau a second time. Because <laughs> you know he ran away from Esau. Coming back, Esau was waiting for him. And Esau was powerful this time. Because the small blessing that he got, the one he managed, he managed it well. <laughs> he managed it well. And so Jacob escapes him a second time and he gets to the same place, Bethel, where he made the vow that if you look after me, I'll give you tithe, conditional giving. Conditional giving, if you bring me, if you take me safely and bring me back here and I don't die, I'll give you a tenth. So he comes back there and he, names, he renames the place El Bethel. So when he was going, he met the house of God. When he was coming back now, because he had encountered grace, he acknowledged the house, the God of the house of God. Right? So it was Bethel when he was going. And that's why I've always said in the past, I've always made sure that you don't, you're not coming to the house of God if you're not coming to the God of the house. So El Beth is more important than Bethel. A lot of people come to Bethel and don't come to the house. You come to the house of the Lord, you don't come to the Lord of the house. So Jacob had an encounter and he called the place house of God. On his way back, he had encountered the God of the house of God because he had just fought that angel and won and then he calls the place El Bethel. Genesis 22, Abraham calls the place Jireh or Jairah, the Lord my provider. Moses calls the place Ebenezer, help, stone of help, place of help because the Lord helped them there. So it's encounters of I am, encounters of little, little pockets of God manifesting his attributes to them that will cause them to want to perpetuate it or name the place after that encounter. But essentially God was saying, I will be who I will be. Let's be going. Does that make sense? That's actually what he meant in Exodus 3. When he said, I am. Let's, let's go. When you are by the Red Sea in Exodus 14, I will be. When Pharaoh is chasing you behind, I will be. When there's darkness in, in Egypt, in Goshen, I will be light. When there is the angel of death going past, on account of the blood, I will be a Passover. That was the promise he gave Moses. And Israel understood that. And Jesus comes and says, that I am, I am. You either believe him or kill him. <laughs> Let's finish that text. That's not, where I'm, that's not what I'm dealing with today. There's so much I haven't taught. I am the bread of life. He who comes to me, yes, shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. 36. Go, go skip to 48, 48 to 51. I am the bread of life. He says it again. <laughs> Just in case you missed the first time. Next one. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. Bread from heaven. Hey? They ate the manna in the wilderness and are dead. Jesus said that like in your face. Where are your fathers now if they ate the bread from heaven? 
this is the bread. And I'm sure at that point you probably have done this. Or done this. If I have like, this is the bread. You know, like, this is the bread which comes down from heaven. That one may eat of it and not die. So if you ate the bread from heaven and you died, you didn't eat the bread from heaven. That's all Jesus was saying. If anyone eats of this bread, how you know you have eaten of this bread? Is the, the only effect is that it causes you to live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh. Can you see that? Which I shall give for the life of the world. So bread in this context, these guys eat manna from heaven. Manna actually means in Hebrew, what is this? Okay, so it's a question in Hebrew. Manna. What is this? It was called manna because they couldn't explain what it was. Does that make sense now? That was for free. Flakes falling from heaven, bread form. Manna. So they named it manna. Manna actually means what is this? Did they eat manna from heaven? Yes. Did they die? Yes. Was it from heaven? can be because the, the property of the bread from heaven is that you will not die. <laughs> Again, I'm not talking bread today. But the proprietary property, the, the distinguishing, the property, the, the resolve, what do you call it now? The, the effects, the primary effect of the bread of life is that once you eat it once, you don't stay eating it. Once you eat it, you will not die. Your, your, your fathers ate the bread from heaven. No, nothing. Manna. Uh, but you're dead. So, yeah, newsflash, baby. You want to know bread from heaven? This, the bread from heaven, my flesh, which I will give for the world. So he fell from the sky, from a firmament. He fell from the same dimensions Elijah went up into. And that was easy for God to do. He could have just put a little dough in the snow. Yeah, just put a little dough in the snow. You know, put a little yeast and all. Probably no yeast. You know, put a little bit of milk or whatever. And then in place of snow, we get manna. Very, very plausible. Why do I say that? Because he asked God, asks Job, do you know the storehouses of snow? Job 38 and 39, do you, do you know this, where I store snow and hail for their time? So it would have been very easy for God to go to that storehouse of snow and just turn it to bread and rain bread instead of snow. Yes, totally plausible according to scripture. Yes, yeah. yeah, totally plausible. Because the snow is not falling from the throne of God. It's falling from the firmament. Which we'll look at and call heaven. And we'll be right because it's heavens.
So they ate it and they died, so they didn't eat it, no. They ate something, but it wasn't the bread of life. Because the distinguishing factor of the bread of life is once you eat it. You get it? John 8, 12. Then he goes to say, I'm the light of the world in John 8, 12. John 8 and 12. Then Jesus spoke to them again saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Then skip to 31. John 8, 31. 31 through to 33. Thank you, Father. John 8, 31 to 33. We're still in John 8. Then Jesus said to those Jews who believe in him, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. Keep going. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. I showed you that one time, not set you free. Yeah. Next, 33. And they answered him, We are Abraham's descendants. You can see him following me, and I'm light. I will, if you believe in me, I will, you will not stumble. And they're like, well, who, is, who are you? Nazarene, Galilean. They answered him, we are Abraham's descendants and, and have never been in bondage to anyone. You can literally hear their boast and their snare. Abraham's children never, how can you say we? Who the son of man shall make free, shall, shall be free indeed. He shall know the truth and truth shall make you. We have never been bound. What are you talking about making us free? By what truth? We are Abraham's descendants. We have never been slaves to anybody, anybody. Next verse. I've never been slaves to anybody. Skip to 39. How can you say, no, go on. How can you say you will be made free? Do you understand the argument now? How can be Abraham's descendants? I like to, I, I, I like, I like, I like, I like, I like Bible study. Because what comes to mind now is when Jesus is telling that, those, those, those Jews on the Sabbath, how can this woman of, daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has bound 18 years? So, so now, I that have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John can answer the Pharisees and say, shut up. What kind of lame argument is that? Yeah, Abraham's descendants were never even bound to anybody. Satan bound daughter of Abraham for 18 years. Remember the woman who was bent over? And Jesus introduced her as daughter of Abraham to show that yeah, you are your Abraham. Both of you can be bound. I, I love God's word. I love, I love to see the entire word out and not just an isolated point of scripture. I've never been, I've never been, I've never been bound. 39. They answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. What was he, what was he inciting them to understand? Abraham shall believed me. And it was credited to him. By faith, Abraham. That's the works of Abraham. If you truly were Abraham's children, you would have done what Abraham did. What did Abraham do? That's what he meant. By the way. 48 to 58. Then the Jews answered and said to him, Did we not rightly say that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? All at once to Jesus. You're a Samaritan. Which is what I'm dealing with today. And you have a demon. Jesus answered, I do not have a demon. But I honor my father and you dishonor me. Keep going. And I do not seek my own glory. There's one who seeks and judges. 
Most assuredly, I said to you, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never see death. Then the Jews said to him, Ah, now we know that you have a demon. <laughs> this is demonic talk, obviously. It's clear. You are possessed. Next, next, keep going. Abraham is dead. And the prophets are dead. And you say, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never taste death. Do you understand the controversy going on? You must follow it carefully. Because you're saying, are you greater? That's where it's going. Our fathers believed. Et manna, as you said, died. Believed God, died. Who are you to say if we believe you? We will not die. We are possessed. Are you following the arguments now? Keep going. Are you, see verse 23 now. Are you greater than our father Abraham who is dead? Go back to 52. Follow the argument. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham is dead and the prophets, and you say, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never taste dead. In other words, Abraham and the prophets kept the word of God and they are dead. Are you greater than our father Abraham who is dead? And... The prophets are dead. Who do you make yourself out to be? What do you think you are? It gets worse. 54. Jesus answered, If I honor myself, my honor is nothing. It is my father who honors me. Of whom the other one you are saying is your God. Keep going. We're going to look to it. Yet you have not known him, but I know him. And if I say I do not know him, I shall be like a liar to you. I shall be a liar like you. You see Jesus, right? You are standing. All you are wearing is robe and sandals. <laughs> and you have a sharp mouth. Because I do not know him, I shall be a liar like you. But I do know him and keep his word. Then he goes even further. He's, by this time, his finger is in the eye. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. 32-year-old boy. Hmm? 4,000 years later. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it. And he was glad. Next verse. The Jew said to him, you are not yet even 50 years old. You see Abraham. You know, I like how Jesus was Turning their wisdom to foolishness. And just juggling with their, their so-called knowledge. Have you have seen Abraham? 58. This is a killer. 58. Jesus said to them, Most assuredly I say to you, before Abraham was. And he said he was. And so he's incited them already. Then he climaxes it by borrowing what God told Moses in Exodus 33 40. Before. See the next verse. If it were you, 
Will you not have stoned him by, by, by verse 50? That's if he even survived to get to John chapter 8. So you realize that in, in actual terms, Jesus lived a very long and fulfilled life. <laughs> Three years of ministry. Ha! Jesus! Jesus as Jesus. Surviving for 36, almost 40 months. Almost three and a half years. Jesus lived a long and fulfilled life. Jesus, three and a half years, walking around. Ah, He lived a very, very... So when Sarah said, with long life, will life satisfy you? Jesus enjoyed it. Hmm. This argument is what informs John's narrative. All through John's gospel. He's arguing for the place of the word made flesh Jesus the Christ as one who has been in the beginning with God and was thus God because the Jews understood that she introduced him as light as salvation as life and importantly as greater than all the systems that existed at the time Jesus did not come to improve or complement the systems he came to uproot and supplant them He came to supplant them. He came to overthrow them. That's what informs his entire writing of John. So in John 1, he argues that. In John 2, he brings up a narrative. Instantly places Jesus at the wedding of Cana in Galilee. And instantly you see the interplay of what is literal and what is symbolic. We're at a wedding feast. Jesus is there. No reference to bridegroom in that story. No reference to bride in that story. Doesn't matter. Cana, Galilee, wedding feast. No wine. Mary comes to him. Give him wine. You have no wine. What have I to do with you? Six water pots. Six. Six. Water pots, each carrying 60 to 80 gallons. Fill them with water. Draw from the water. Take to the master of the ceremony. Today's equivalent of the chairman of the occasion. And when the master of the ceremonies drank the water that had become wine, he said, other parties give the best first. Then guests are drunk, then they bring the bad one. You have saved the best for last. This is after he had told Mary that his time had not yet come. And I've taught that in this house before. If Jesus said, my time had not yet come, and then the next thing he did was to give them wine, then he lied. Or, the wine he gave them was not the wine for which his time had not yet come. Because when his time came, he took the cup and says, this wine, is a cup of the New Testament in my blood. Shed for the remission of your sin. That was when his time had come. Does that make sense? That's when the time came. The time of the wine was at the time of changing covenants. Changing testaments. In his blood. And his time came. So when... when Mary said, they have no wine. 
he was like, yes, I can see. That's why I came. Just, it's just not time. I am at a wedding feast. There's no bride or bridegroom. They are, but where are they? There's no mention of them. And then there's no wine. They're out. And this is in Cana, in Galilee, which was a Hellenist settlement, referring to the fact that it was most likely a Gentile or mixture wedding. So John already starts to peddle this strong analogies using the literal and the symbolic. Straight out, John doesn't have time for genealogies, greeting, greeting. Have you noticed? Just go straight in. Beginning was the word. <laughs> what was with God? What was God? He just has to shoot. Same was in the beginning. All things were by him. He was life. Life was life of man. Life shines in darkness. The Lord became flesh. Came to his own. His own received him not. Of his fullness we have received. You know? The Lord was given by Moses. Was great and through. through Jesus. He just keeps going. Enters John. Behold the Lamb of God that takes away 29. The sin of the world. Right? Shoot, shoot, shoot. Chapter 2. Where they came in Galilee. No time to waste. He has an agenda. Show the superiority of Christ. The Son of God, the Word of God, who was there from the beginning. So we see all of that play out. Analogy. He gives them wine as a symbol of the wine he would give them. At the marriage, ultimately, of the bridegroom and the bride. So he places this wine at the marriage. But then downplays the detail of the bride and groom because it's not exactly quite the marriage. Not the marriage. And then he rushes through that and then gets into John 3 like he's in a hurry. John 3 retires that analogy, picks another analogy, that of a woman giving birth to a child and needing to give birth to the child again. Because from the wedding, Jesus is in chapter 3 of John with Nicodemus at night. Streets, hurry, 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 straight. And then Nicodemus hasn't even asked Jesus a question. Jesus starts to answer him. Master, I perceive that thou art a man come from God because no one can know these things except he came from God. Ah, Nicodemus, I said a man be born again. <laughs> This is John 3.3. 3. Start from verse 1. John 3.1. Very interesting. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nico. A ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these things that you do unless God is with him. Verse 3. Jesus answered and said to him, Verily, verily, I say to you, unless you are born again. What did Nico ask? Nothing. Jesus answered. What was in Nico's heart? So at that point, Nico becomes Simon. Nicodemus becomes the symbol of humanity 
So in God talking, Jesus answering Nicodemus, he's answering humanity's unasked questions. So it, it, it goes beyond just the actual Pharisee, Nicodemus. It becomes everybody in Nicodemus's shoes. So Jesus answered humanity in Nicodemus. Except a man be born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And then Nicodemus like, ah, hey, okay. But how, I'm already old. How can I, okay, I'm willing to born me again. But how? Can I go into my mother's womb a second time? So you understood the concept of second birth. Jesus makes it worse. Except you're born of water. I explain that here. And spirit. You cannot enter the kingdom of God. Then Jesus just keeps talking. Nicodemus doesn't say a word again. Till this chapter ends. Keeps going. Is Nicodemus God told, Jesus told, for God's all of the world? The same conversation. Jesus finishes and leaves. And it brings us to the next analogy, which is my teaching today, chapter 4. Leaves Nicodemus, heads out after hearing that John, people are saying that Jesus' disciples are baptizing more people than John's disciples and all that. Jesus is like, you know what, let me, let me leave Judea and head back to Galilee. And Jesus leaves. So John 4. I've taken the time to establish the foundation of what is literal, what is symbolic, and the correlation between, or the interplay between what is literal and symbolic, and the fact that it takes due diligence of Bible study to be able to ascertain what is literal, what is symbolic, and at what point it is both, and at what point it is none. It's not every time that they're eating food that it means something. Yeah, a lot of times they were just eating. Yeah, like Jesus sitting at the, at the, leaning at the crouch at the house of Levi or Matthew or Zacchaeus. He was just eating. Do you understand? Every time he went to eat at Mary, Martha and Lazarus' house, he was just, just eating. Yeah. So there are times where some things mean some things. Sometimes when they don't mean some things. There are times when numbers mean some things. There are times when numbers don't mean anything. So we get to John 4. And we'll read that text. It's a story that I'm very sure a lot of us know very well, which makes it fun to exegete. Yeah, I like exegeting texts that we all know or grew up with, or in most cases, I've even preached from. So Jesus leaves in John 4. Maybe I should just read through and then come back and break it down, yeah? John 4 from verse 1 right through to... Whew, 41. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again to Galilee. Jesus did not baptize, just so you know. But he needed to go through Samaria. We'll come back to this. 
So he came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. This is a place called Shechem in the Old Testament. Pay attention to that because that's where Jacob gave land to his brothers. That's where Joseph was buried. Okay, Joseph, Jacob's well was there. Jacob's well was there. Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well. It's about the sixth hour, midday. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, he spoke first, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Then the woman of Samaria said to him, how is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is, asking who says to you, give me a drink. You'd have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw with. And the well is deep. You know, you know, Buga. Where then do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? We just dealt with Abraham. You see, so you see why I said it was John's focus? Are you greater than our father Jacob? Who gave us the well and drank from it himself as well as his sons and livestock? And let me add here, spoiler alert, and are dead. Because there is no water at Jacob's well. That's the title of my teaching. No water at Jacob's well. A.K.A. the Savior doesn't need saving. Twelve. No water at Jacob's well. Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself as well as his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, said to her, whoever drinks of this water, this well, will test again. <laughs> Are you following? But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. The same language used for bread in chapter 6. The same language used for his blood as wine later on in chapter 6. In fact, that's the one that made his disciples turn around and stop following him. Same language but whoever drinks of the water that shall give him the water that shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into eternal life so he doesn't just want to give you water that you want one water again he wants to give you water that becomes the water that gives you eternal life the woman said to him sir give me this water that i may not thirst and come here to draw jesus said to her go call your husband and come here the woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you have well said, or you have said well. I have no husband. You are right. For you have had five husbands. And the one whom you now have is not your husband. This is number six. It's still not your husband. In that, you have spoken truly. The woman said to him, sir, okay, I perceive that. I perceive that you are a prophet. Like I've explained to you before, so he switched the conversation. Our father's worship on this mountain. In other words, I've been looking for a prophet, a man of God, to ask this question. So let's leave, let's leave my, 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 my husband's face. 
Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. And you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where we ought to worship. You said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. That's why you're going to places to worship. Because he's not on a mountain. We know what we worship for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming and now is when two worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Not in the mountain or in Jerusalem. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said to him, I know the Messiah is coming who is called the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. You are a prophet, so don't, don't push it. Yeah. <laughs> because I because I told you that you're a prophet now you are, you are not to flex <laughs> not to flex you don't want to take the place of the Messiah come down when the Messiah come down when they call Christ when he comes Jesus said to her I who speak to you am he and at this point the disciples came and they marveled that he talked with a woman yet no one said a word. Someone said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? The woman then left her water pot. Went her way into the city and said to the men, pay attention to this, pay attention to this. Come and say, she said to the men, come, see a man who told me all things I ever did. Jesus said to her, you are right. You have no husband. You have had five. This sixth is not your husband. She didn't reply and say anything else. She asked him a question about worship. But she went and told the men in the city, come see a man who told me all I ever did. Pay attention to that. All Jesus told her was, it's not your husband. You've had five before. This six is not your husband. But she said, told me all I ever did. Did you get it? Go and call your husband. I have none. You are right. You spoke well. You've had five. This sixth you're with. It's not yours. I perceive you're a prophet. I have a worship question. She runs into the town and tells the men, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. You've had five husbands. The sixth one is not your husband. Come see a man who told me all I ever did. When Jesus told her you've had five, the sixth is not yours. What she heard was everything she ever did. Could this be the Christ? But he told you, I that I'm talking to you, I'm he. But she couldn't believe that. Because the person in front of her needed saving. Verse 30. The person in front of her didn't look like a savior. He was dying. And he was going to die without her water. And there's no way I'm going to take you seriously. You're, you're hallucinating. You're... Could this be the Christ? And they went out of the city and came to him. <laughs> In the meantime, the disciples urged him, saying, Rabbi, eat. That means he's the only one that was that weary. But he said to them, I have food to eat of which you do not know. Was I dying by well? Ah, Holy Spirit, help me to teach this thing today. Therefore, his disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him anything to eat? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Do you not say there are still four months and then comes the harvest? 
Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields, for they are already white for harvest. And he who reaps receives wages and gathers fruit for eternal life, that both he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labors. And many of the Samaritans of that city, Sikar, right, believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified. He told me all I ever did. Not he told me that I had five men. That's what Jesus said. That's not what she heard. 40. So when the Samaritans had come to him, they urged him to stay with them and he stayed there. Two days, 41, and many more believed because of his own word. There's a lot of juicy elements here. There's travel, there's compulsion, there's Samaria, there's Jacob, there's well, there's water, there's woman, there's a lot of stuff. But in verse 3, let's start to break this down. You see that Jesus had to go through Galilee. He had to travel. Straight walk from Judea through to Galilee. 70 miles. This is Israel, right? Top to bottom. You have to imagine with me. Galilee is up here. Galilee is in northernmost Israel. Right? Galilee is up northernmost Israel. And there were 10 tribes in northern Israel. After Solomon died and the kingdom split. So there were 10 tribes up and there were 2 tribes down here. Now Jerusalem is right down here. Jerusalem is the capital of Judea. You follow me? Yeah? Jerusalem is the capital of Judea. So Jerusalem, Bethlehem, uh, Bethany, a couple of places are just right here in Judea. Yeah? And then there is northern Israel here, Galilee, where Jesus is from. Capernaum, Nazareth, all of that is up here in the north. You follow me? On the left of Israel, there's the Mediterranean Sea. Right? Bordering all of Israel. On the right of Israel, there is primarily the River Jordan. Yeah? Sea of Galilee up here. River Jordan running through very thin. And the Dead Sea down here. Make sense? So you have Galilee all up here. And then you have Jerusalem or Judea down here. The problem is, in the middle here, you have Samaria. Make sense? You have Galilee up here. You have Judea down here. And you have the central region, Samaria. And Jews and Samarians didn't agree. On this side, you have the Mediterranean Sea. On that side, you have Jordan River. That means Jordan River runs right through from the Sea of Galilee, right down, it comes in thin strip, runs through Samaria on the, on, the, on the east, runs through Judea, and then enters the Dead Sea. The average Jew, wanting nothing to do with Samaria, to go from here to here was a straight 70 mile walk right 100 and something kilometers you just march right through Samaria and you're there the average Jew wants nothing to do with a Samaritan so the average Jew coming to Samaria will leave Judea find River Jordan cross River Jordan into Gentile territory the Capolis, where Jesus crossed the Sea of Galilee to go and chase that guy out that had the legion of demons. The Capolis was up here. The Jew will cross into the Peria area, cross River Jordan, 
go all the way here and then make sure he has completely bypassed Samaria then cross the river Jordan again and come back in to get into Galilee that's how bad he was that's how bad he was they were not going to do anything Samaritan they weren't going to touch it with the temple pole they loathed the Samaritans and I'll explain why in a bit so Samaria is an entire area that has a city called Samaria so Samaria was a whole region and Samaria was part of the 10 tribes of northern Israel. But sometime before Jesus, the Assyrians attacked Samaria and conquered it. When they conquered it, they sacked the tribes that were here. So the tribes that were in Samaria essentially were the tribes of Ephraim and half the tribe of Manasseh. Because the other, the other half the tribe of Manasseh was over the Jordan River. That's if you follow Bible history. Yeah, Ephraim was giving Ephraim and Manasseh were the two sons of Joseph that were broken into two tribes when Benjamin was cut off as a tribe because of the, the abomination that he did to his brothers, remember? So he was decimated and then two tribes were made to make up for them, them that, that tribe. And it was now Ephraim and Manasseh. Ephraim was here, Manasseh had half a bit and then the other bit. So this was originally Israelites that were here, Jews. Assyria attacks Samaria, sacks it, basically carries away everybody that was there. And then starts to populate it with their own people. Assyrians. Gentiles. Make sense? After a while, some of the Assyrian exiles start to return back home. And they're coming and they're settling in Assyria. By the time they're coming and settling in Assyria, Assyria is now under Roman rule. Because in the time of Jesus, the Ro Romans were in charge. So that's why they were called Hellenists. Because Hellenists were Jews that lived under a Greek culture. Proselytes were uh, uh, Gentiles who converted to Judaism. Make sense? So these guys were called Hellenists because they were Jews, but they were not exactly Jews. Does that make sense? They intermarried with the Assyrians. They were not mixing with the Greeks and the Romans. They were, they were, they were a sorry bunch. In fact, in Joshua 20, you find where when the, the Israel was apportioned to different tribes, they had refuge cities where if somebody was a murderer, and they had to run. They were refuge cities where they could run. And most of those refuge cities, in fact, six of them were in Samaria. So the Jews on both sides hated Samaria because everybody that Israel on both sides rejected ended up in Samaria. Which made it, yeah, which made it a lot worse. So imagine somebody killed your wife or daughter or father. And then instead of getting justice, they run to Samaria. And because they're in a refuge city, you can't go into a refuge city and kill somebody. Their punishment is running away from everybody else to that refuge city. That's how Australia was born. Yeah? Australia was a prisoner's colony. So when somebody was in the British Empire was sentenced to death or something, they sent you to a penal colony. So sending you to Australia and dumping you there was punishment. Because Australia was the end of the world. Nothing was happening there. So for your crime, you are sentenced to life in Australia. I mean, not now. I know, I know now you want that sentence. <laughs> but, so, so essentially, it started off as a prison colony. That's sort of the idea. Does that make sense? So back in the day, it wasn't a cool thing to be say you had been sentenced to Australia. Yeah, it was literally the end of the world. Ain't nobody going to see you anymore. That's what it was. So when you run into a, a, a refugee in Samaria, then that's your punishment. 
enough. And you are intermingling in Samaria with people that are quarter Assyrians, quarter Jews, quarter Greeks. You know what I mean? And not pure-blooded Jews in any shape or form. So the Jews detested them, hated them badly. Look at Second Kings 17 and 24. So you can understand why Jews will go out of their way, literally, more than three times their journey. Adding an extra week to their journey. Just to make sure you don't step into Samarian territory. Second Kings 17, 24. You see Samaria now. Second Kings 17, 24. Then the king of Assyria brought people from Babylon. Kutha, Ava, Hamath, and from Sepharvaim. And placed them in the cities of Samaria. Instead of the children of Israel. Can you see that now? And they took possession of Samaria and dwelt in its cities. See verse 26 to 32. You see the problem with Samaria. So they spoke to the king of Assyria saying, The nations whom you have removed and placed in the cities of Samaria do not know the rituals of the God of the land. Therefore he has sent lions among them. And indeed, they are killing them because they do not know the rituals of the God of the land. So lions were ravaging the people that had been settled in Samaria. And the people suggested it was the God of the land that has sent the lions to eat the people because the people were not doing the rituals of the God of the land. In their, in their estimation, referring to Yahweh as that God. And see the next verse, very interesting story. Then the king of Assyria commanded, send there one of the priests whom you brought back from there. Let him go and dwell there. And let him teach them the rituals of the God of the land. <laughs> Keep going. Then one of the priests whom they had carried away from Samaria came and dwelt in Bethel. And taught them how they should fear the Lord. However, every nation continued to make gods of its own. And put them in the shrines. On the high places where the Samaritans had made. Every nation in the cities where they dwell. Keep going. The men of Babylon made Sukkoth Banoth. The men of, that's their gods now. The men of Kuth made Nagar. The men of Hamath made Ashima. And the Avites made Nibas and Tartak. And the Sephites Sephavites burns their children in the fire as Molech to Adramalek and Anamalek, the gods of Sephavaim. 32. So, they feared the Lord. And from every class, they appointed for themselves priests of the high places who sacrificed for them in the shrines of the high places. 33. They feared the Lord, yet served their own gods. Can you see the mixture? They served the Lord, so the, so the lions of that God will not eat them. But they had their own gods. It was very crazy. That priest that was sent, I don't have time to go into it, is the son-in-law of Sambalat because Sambalat was a Samaritan. When Nehemiah led that exodus back to Israel to rebuild the wall of Jericho, Sambalat came at him with the army of Samaria. Jews did not forgive it. Nehemiah 4, 2 or 3. I'm trying to explain to you the bad blood between Jews and Samaritans. Stephen was one. You all know Sambalat, right? You just didn't know he was a Samaritan. But it so happened when Sambalat heard that they were rebuilding the wall, that he was furious and very indignant. Why? Because initially when they started resettling, they asked that why is the central place of worship Jerusalem? This will explain why the woman was asking Jesus what she was asking him. When they came back and began to resettle in, a, in, in Samaria, they insisted on having a place of worship. 
In fact, they built Mount Gerizim first. Israel came and, and they started to rebuild the Temple of Solomon in Jerusalem. Samaritans was like, why should we join and go down to Jerusalem? So they built a temple in Mount Gerizim that the Jews, the, the chief priest of the temple in Jerusalem, sent emissaries to go and burn down the temple in Mount Gerizim. If you will not worship in Jerusalem, you will not worship God. You don't even deserve to have a temple. You know, you're worshipping God and, and you're worshipping Molech and Allah Molech and having all the other temples. You cannot have all those temples and have a temple to worship our God. So they burnt down Mangerism, the temple there. Relieving only Jerusalem. Does that make sense? Eventually in AD 70, that's almost seven or so hundred years later, the Jerusalem temple is raised to the ground and burnt. Does that make sense? Now way before all of this, Nehemiah is coming in his day and says he wants to rebuild Jerusalem wall. Takes his back, this is takes his back to the exile of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, who had sacked Jerusalem long before this guy did in 8070. I can't remember his name now. Um, Saladin. Right? And then Nehemiah comes back with Jews and starts rebuilding Jerusalem. The Samaritans will have a problem with it. Because you're coming to reinstate worship in Jerusalem again, at the expense of Samaria, that blood carries right through to Jesus' time. Does that make sense? And by Jesus' time, the, the feud is at an all-time high because they have actually succeeded in rebuilding Jerusalem, have succeeded in rebuilding Solomon's temple. In fact, Herod helped to rebuild the temple in Solomon for the second or third time. So now, there's no place of worship in Samaria. There's just the temple in Jerusalem. And everybody has to journey there every year. And to journey there every year, you have to literally bypass all of Samaria and go around all that way and come to Jerusalem, finish Jerusalem, bypass Samaria, and go all the way back here. So you understand the beef. They also did not forgive, Jews did not forgive Sambalat and the Samaritan army for coming against them when their forefathers were rebuilding the wall of Jerusalem. So on many, the, the, the beef was multi-pronged. There was many different things going on. This explains in Luke 9 where Jesus was preparing to go up for the Passover and for the feast and he sent them ahead to, they had to go through a Samaritan village and they did not receive him. Then those two boys said, should we call down fire from heaven? Do you understand it now? So there's a lot of background issues going on with the Jews and the Samaritans that at face value you will not understand. Does that make sense? So much bad blood between them. This is why Jesus uses that, that parable of, of the Good Samaritan. And that's why he places the Good Samaritan against the Jewish priest and the Jewish Levite. So the Jew, the Jews reading, hearing that parable would have been very either convicted or heavily insulted. How, how can you say that? A Jew is in trouble and he says, Samaritan, Samaritan, that takes him and saves him and spends his money to have him nursed and says, Keep, I give you some money. If you use more money than I give you, when I come back, I'll reimburse you. That's why Jesus borrowed from that to give that parable. Does that make sense? So, by in English, and I say, Oh, you are such a good Samaritan. You don't know what that means. 
<laughs> no, such a good Samaritan. Arch enemy of the Jew. So the normal route is to go round by past Samaria and get to Galilee. Not Jesus. Jesus doesn't have time to waste. So he says it's necessary for him, as far as Jesus is concerned, if there's a road through here, I don't have energy to stress myself. If there's a way through Samaria to Judea, that's the road I'm going to take. That's what he means in John 4 when he says that it was necessary for him to go through Samaria. Yeah, John 4, 4. Now, some theologians have made it look like it was like a divine providence. It was like God made him to pass through Samaria because, has anybody heard that before? And that's a very dangerous theology, and I'll explain to you why. It's nothing that Jews will never do, which is true. I've just explained to you why that was the case, and why there's no Jew that would do that. Right? But if you interpret it scripturally to say that Jesus needed to go through Samaria because it's not the custom of Jesus, of the Jews, to go through Samaria, you put Jesus as being a racial bigot. You put Jesus in the category of people that will avoid people because they didn't cohabit well. And then if you did that, he cannot claim to be the savior of the world. That's a problem. It means you will add Jesus to the problem. Okay, now I'm teaching. Does that make sense? Jesus and other Jews. His disciples are going from Judea to Galilee. And you say, naturally, Jesus will not pass here because Jesus is a Jew. Then there's, I have a problem with that Jesus. Am I the only one? I have a major problem to that Jesus who will join other Jews in perpetuating ethnic bigotry against Samaritans. He cannot be doing that and claiming he's the savior of the world. So, to interpret this as Jesus going from Judea to Galilee and naturally he would not pass through Samaria is painting Jesus an ethnic bigot. Like Jesus will come to Igbo land now and will not step in Osu territory because he doesn't want to be affected by their issues. Then Jesus should not come. Therefore, that theological explanation of John 4.4 is flawed and therefore wrong. The only plausible explanation that means he needed to go through the Samaria was that it was the logically short and straightforward route for Jesus to take. And Jesus did not care if he had to pass through the valley of the shadow of death. If the road from Judea to Galilee is through Samaria, then through Samaria we must go. It, it didn't mean nothing to Jesus. There's Samaria, there's lions, there's Assyrians. Is that the shortest route from here to here? I'm not spending an extra kilometer going anywhere else. I am too busy going about my father's business to be thinking of ways to circumvent a road because he goes through Samaria. That's one. That's important. Two, it will also establish that you will not put Jesus as part of the problem. You won't put Jesus as part of the people that eschewed Samarians and not let them touch him because somehow they will stain him. That is also part of us trying to save the Savior. 
us trying to protect Jesus from being stained. Protect Jesus from the people's mess. What else did he come to deal with? If not their mess, stop trying to save the Savior. So he goes through Samaria. Have you gotten that? Goes through them. He's not, not thinking all that complex things that people are thinking. He just had sense. Does that make sense? And I've explained to you that it's not the first time he traveled through Samaria. Such that the John 4 narrative was not exclusive. It was not the first time. Jesus, as long as they wrote from here to here. Check the ministry of Jesus. I think I shared it in one of the recent teachings. Discipleship consciousness or whatever. Check the ministry of Jesus. He traveled here to here. Multiple times. Judea to Galilee. Judea to Galilee. Judea to He traveled it all the time. There's no way. Jesus is crossing here. Go round. And then, you're not, because the Jordan River wasn't navigable all through. Does that make sense? You couldn't take a boat and go all the way up. No, you cross the river, then walk. Climb up, and Samaria had serious mountain ranges on this side. And then get all the way here, cross the Jordan again. To come back and get what is wrong. Jesus is like, no. No, I'm the wisdom of God. I don't do things like this. I can't. We have to redeem the times. I can't do things like this. So every time Jesus was going north to south, he went through Samaria. Yeah, that theological statement that Jesus, it was, it was a one-off because of the particular thing with the woman, so he had to go through here. It would add Jesus to being a part of the problem. And Jesus did not come as part of the problem. Do you understand that now? So he traveled, look at Luke 9, 52 to 56. Jesus and his disciples, no, he, and he, because they followed well, they imitated every time they two were traveling, they were passing Samaria like it didn't matter. Luke 9, 40, 52 to 56. And he sent messages before his face. And as they went, they entered a village of the two. Jesus didn't care. It didn't matter to him. They did not receive him because his face was set for the journey to Jerusalem. And when disciples James and John saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Just like Elijah did. Turn and repeat them and said, you don't know what manner of spirit you're of. Luke 17 and 11. Luke 17, 11. Luke 17, 11. Now it happened as he went to Jerusalem that he what? Jesus didn't give a toss. He traveled through. The apostles came along doing the exact same thing. Acts 8 and 5. Please don't paint Jesus as part of the problem. The Savior doesn't need saving. Matthew. Acts 8 and 5. I've started teaching. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them. Mm -hmm. Jesus himself said, you shall be my witnesses in Judea. He said, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, which is the capital of that region. Judea. Logically, after Judea, what's the next region? Then rest of Israel and then it's logical. They hit Samaria hard. Acts 8 26. We're not afraid of Samaria. Just like we're not afraid of the darkness. 
Now an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Arise and go toward the south, along the road which goes down from Jerusalem to where in today's day? Where? Where is Gaza today? In the West Bank. Samaria. This is desert. Acts 18, 14 to 15. Acts 8, 14 to 15. Acts 8, 14 to 15. Bible study is good. I'm trying to put Jesus out of things as if they are too complicated for Jesus to handle. Then he's not the savior of the world. Once you believe that there are certain things that he cannot handle, then you believe there are certain things in your life that he cannot handle. That's a lie of the enemy. It's a lie. It's a lie. That people can't handle some things doesn't mean he cannot handle it. Now, when the disciples who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them. Why? Go. Oh, oh don't go now. They are there. They're Samaritans. Oh, these guys were transversing Samaria a lot. Because it was until today, you know, I mean, I don't know about now because of all the blockade and everything, but back in the day, it was because of the, the trade route. It was very prosperous because northern Israel was more rich than southern Israel. Galilee was a very rich place. They had the most fertile land. So harvest time, pff, business boomed. And, and uh, caravan guys who didn't care about Jews and Samaritans will come right through Samaria. So there's a lot of trade and a lot of prosperity coming that way. That's why Jesus' disciples will have money back, keeping money for Jesus. They were Galileans. They, the guys that left to follow Jesus, they don't leave to follow Jesus because they were poor. No. No, no, no. No, no, no. I'm trying not to stay along what I'm teaching. But the guys that left did not follow Jesus because they didn't have anything they were doing. No, they were, they were successful entrepreneurs, successful businessmen. Galileans were not poor. In fact, the Jews, other Jews, did not like Galileans because they were very rich, very astute, very quick, and had an accent. So their accent was part of why they used to look at just you, a Galilean, because he had an accent. The Aramic accent of the Galilean was different from the Aramic accents of the Judean. Does that make sense? The northern accent was very distinct and they had this thing about them that made the other Jews laugh at them. Like, look at you, look at your accent. Now, to, to be laughing at someone with a funny accent and plenty of money, the person will tell you, I can keep the money and the accent, you can. <laughs> Is that, are you following me now? <laughs> yeah, so don't think that these guys didn't have anything going for them. No, 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 no. They, they, were, they, were, they were proper, they were okay. That's why they would look at Jesus and challenge him and say, Sir, we left all to follow you. All meant something. Do you understand? Yeah. All was not your kiosks. You know, do you understand why you're selling 10 slashes of milk? And, 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 you know, I'm not dispersing little beginnings. I'm telling you that these guys left major stuff. They shut down fishery industries. Fishery industries that they shut down. They walked away from inheritances. James and John. Zebedee was, they, they were at least second generation fishermen. Because they were doing the business with their father. They left the nets, the fish, and their father. So they were at least, at least second generation in the business. Assuming Zebedee himself did not inherit the business from somebody else. They were not pushovers. They were not pushovers. They said, we have left all. What they left carried weight. Oh, they left carried weight. They were not pushovers. Galileans were not pushovers. They were not pushovers. So Jesus was not doing anything out of character, traveling through Samaria. For Jesus, there's only one way through this place. So he said, why should I do one week when I can do two and a half days? And in fact, Bible history has it 
that Jesus and his disciples were the, one of the fastest walking human beings in history. Because Bible history has it that this, this 70 mile journey, Jesus' disciples have done it twice, round trip in one day. Yes, yes. Go on, go on study history. Check out those two that walked to Jesus on the way to Emmaus. Check. Check how much, how much distance they covered. According to Bible history, these guys, Jesus and disciples, had a speed, walking speed, that was slightly slower than jogging speed. Slightly, slightly, slightly fewer kilometers per hour than jogging speed. They're walking. They were brisk. They walked with grace. Yeah. Because the normal, normal, normal average time to do this was two and a half days. Brisk walking, 13 kilometers a day walk, two and a half days. And Jesus has nailed this inside a day. Round trip inside a day. I, I can't remember, I wrote it somewhere in my studies, but I wrote, a, I calculated the amount of, of the, the, the travel distance that Jesus covered in Israel. I wrote it somewhere in my studies. In three years. Yeah. Close to three or four thousand kilometers. That Jesus covered on foot in three years. Yes. It was, it was wild with him. What drove him? What drove Jesus? Balo. It was, it, was, it was a dripping. I must walk the walks. I must walk the walks. I must walk the walks. Jesus set his eyes for Jerusalem. It's not just looking at Jerusalem. It is, it is, it is Jesus and Jesus look at him. Jesus set his eyes for Jerusalem. It means as he saw that he needed to be in Jerusalem, he got up and did not stop until he was there. That's, that's how Jesus walked. That's how Jesus was. He set his eyes to Jerusalem. Let's go. And he will step until he gets there. Now what I'm explaining to you is crucial for John 4. I'm not just telling you stories. So the travel of Jesus through Samaria is nothing unusual. There's something unusual about the John 4 narrative. Jesus' travel route is not one of them. Or American route. It's not one of them. It's not unusual. There's an unusual element of that story. But his travel route is not unusual. They went up and down. Does that make sense? So... He didn't have the kind of time to waste on something he would have considered frivolous. Since he was the savior of the world, I wrote here. And the third port of call for declaring the gospel would be Samaria. Jerusalem, Judea. So Samaria had always been on his plan. Are you, are you following me now? And the stuff I wrote here I don't want to go into, but it will help you. Because, you know, I, like I said, when I'm teaching, I, just like Paul, I preempt questions from some of you that have studied. Because I'm hearing stuff like, you know, but but there was a time when Jesus told them when he was sending them out to preach, they don't go into Samaria. So the next question that will come was, if Jesus did not avoid Samaria, why did he tell his disciples don't go into their cities? And as a good Bible teacher, I will not have to wait until he asked that question in Aspav, because it means he would, dis would disturb and haunt you until then. So they answer right now, Matthew 10, Matthew 10, 5. If Jesus was not avoiding Samaria, why would he tell them to not go there? These twelve, Jesus sent out and commanded them, saying, Do not 
go into the way of the Gentiles and do not enter a city of the Samarians. Why? Matthew 15 and 24. Matthew 15 and 24 will give you the answer. But he answered and said, I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Whether or not I will deal with this in UTG series 3, I don't know. I'm, this, the scope is very large. But you see, Jesus came as the savior of the world, but he came to Israel. So, so really, I'm not sure if you'll understand this if I said it, but um, in God's grand plan, Israel was the savior of the world. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. Israel was supposed to be the first fruit of salvation. And then Israel takes it. Jesus goes back. Israel spreads it. Does that make sense? So you are not supposed to have been saved now if there is one unsaved Israelite. It's the Israelites that are supposed to be saving you. So that's what he means when he says he came for the lost sheep of Israel. You understand? Give this thing. I'm, I'm, not, I'm the savior of the world, but I'm delivering it to Israel. Just like I came to raise disciples, but I'm raising only these ones. Israel gets it. Israel will spread it. So Jesus is folk. That's why Jesus did not. The farthest Jesus went outside Israel was Decapolis. He crossed over the, the sea of Tiberias, up northwest, and Decapolis was just there after the Sea of Galilee, which is where he met that guy that had legion. Decapolis is a region of 10 cities, Deca. So up in the north, just over above the north of Jordan, they had a few Gentile settlements there. That's the only Gentile contact Jesus had. Does that make sense? That's where the whole, why have you disturbed us now? Send us into the pigs and all that stuff. The capitalists. That's the farthest Jesus went. All his ministry was in Israel. Proclaiming the kingdom to them. Once Israel gets it, Israel will spread it. Ah, Israel. Stiff-necked people. That's what God called them. Stiff-necked. See Romans 9. 1 to 5. These are things I've not taught, but I need to... Just run through them so you can, you can answer some questions. But today I'm teaching Romans, I'm teaching John 4, John 4. Romans 9, 1 to 5. I tell the truth, Paul is saying, Paul, I'm not lying. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit. That I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, that's the Jews, my countrymen according to the flesh, my natural relatives. Go on. Who are Israelites? To whom pertain the adoption? To whom pertain the glory? To whom pertain the covenants? To whom pertain the giving of the law? To whom pertain the service of God? To whom pertain the promises? Five. And of whom are the fathers? And from whom according to the flesh Christ came? Who is overall eternally blessed God? Amen. <laughs> verse 3 to verse 5, NLT. I'm not teaching you old wives' fables. It's scripture. 
It takes time, it takes time, it takes time, it takes time, but it's scripture. It's scripture. I'm not just stand here and tell you something because I like it. For my people, my Jewish brothers and sisters, I would be willing to be, be willing to be forever cursed, cut off from Christ, if that would save them. They are the people of Israel, chosen to be God's adopted children. God revealed his glory to them. He made covenants with them and gave them his law. He gave them the privilege of worshipping him and receiving wonderful promises. Verse 5, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are their ancestors. And Christ himself was an Israelite as far as his human nature is concerned. And he is God. The one who rules over everything and is worthy of eternal praise. Amen. To them belong the promise. To them belong the covenants. To them belong the adoption. To them belong the giving of the law. To them. That was the people God wanted to deal with. They're no they no John 1 11. John 1 11. Is it, is it coming together for somebody? Right, salvation was not meant for you in the first instance. It wasn't. And it's scripture. So now you see how John 1 11 makes sense. He came to his own. And his own received him not. That's where KJV is nice. Came to his own and his own received him not, but as many. So the many that I received him are not the ones that he regarded as his own. The many that I received will be like this. I'll show you. Romans 9. I showed you 1 to 5. Go back to 30. Into Romans 10. These are things I've not yet taught. Romans 9, 30. Into the first four chapters of Romans 10. What shall we say then? That Gentiles... Who did not pursue righteousness have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness of faith. But Israel, pursuing the law of righteousness, join them if you like, has not attained even to that law of righteousness. Why? Because they did not seek it by faith, but as it were, by the works of the law. Why? They stumbled. At the stumbling stone, he was from Nazareth. Nothing good can come out of Nazareth. I, I am expecting the Messiah, but don't tell me this carpenter is who we're talking about. Same thing at the well. I'm expecting the Messiah. You are here fainting. You are dying. You need my water, sir. You cannot be the one to give me water. You cannot be the one to save me. The way you look, you need me to save you. That's the Savior doesn't need saving Romans 9 1 30 but they stumble at the stumbling stone 33 and it's, as it written behold I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and a rock of offense it was prophesied and whoever believes on him the stumbling stone and rock of offense will not be put to shame brethren my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved this is Paul for I bear them witness that they have zeal for God like today's church but not according to knowledge not according they have zeal for god zeal for god not for satan zeal for god but not according to knowledge for they being ignorant of god's righteousness and seeking to establish their own have not submitted to the righteousness of god that's israel's problem why for christ for righteousness so why are you looking for righteousness in the law when Christ is the end, the telos, the fulfillment of the law as far as getting righteousness is concerned? That's where Israel missed it. Mm. 
Can, can I tell you why God got you saved? To make Israel jealous. No, it's not me. Romans 11, 11. Grace, use you to show off to Israel what he can do, even if Israel no agree. I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? Referring to Israel. Certainly not. But through their fall. NLT. Romans 11, 11. NLT. Did God's people stumble and fall beyond recovery? Of course not. They were disobedient. So God made salvation available to the Gentiles. But he wanted his own people to become jealous and say, that salvation the Gentiles have, it belongs to us. Give us our salvation. What is happening now? How can you be enjoying grace? We are the people of God. Give us our grace. Verse 15, Romans eleven fifteen. 15. Romans eleven fifteen. 15, you think God is random. Even so then, at this present time, there's a remnant. Okay, go back to 15. For if they are being given NLT, for since their rejection meant that God offered salvation to the rest of the world, eh, the acceptance will even be more wonderful when they accept it. It will be life for those who were dead. Verse 20. Yes, but remember, those branches were broken off because they didn't believe in Christ. And so you are there. Because you do believe. So don't think highly of yourself. Be careful what will happen. Don't disrespect Israel because you're the one that is now saved. Or like other people now start to dismiss Israel like God doesn't have a special plan for them. Don't join those people that turn Israel into only an analogy. Don't do it. Don't do it. Don't join the people that make Israel into just an analogy. God has a bespoke plan for Israel as a people on top of the type of church or anti-type of church that they are. Do you understand now? So that, that, that answers Matthew 10.5. Don't go into Samaria. Not because Jesus detested Samaritans. But because this message of the gospel was primarily for the Jews. That's what he told the Samaritan woman in John for. For salvation is of the Jews. Does that make sense now? Salvation is to be dispensed by the Jews. And get them saved. So look at look, Romans 11.26. Romans 11.26. And so all Israel will be saved. As the scripture says, the one who rescues will come from Jerusalem and he will turn Israel away from ungodliness. Himself, 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 himself. Their issue is this, the church is not involved in God's issue with Israel. The church is not involved at all. Go on. I need to go to verse 32. He, and I, this is my covenant with them that I will take away their sins. Many of the people of Israel are now enemies of the good news. And this is the ancestor. And this benefits you Gentiles. Yet, they are still the people he loves. Because he chose their ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They had faith. They saw. Keep going. And God is faithful to his promise. For God, This is where he now gets to verse 29. It says, for the gift and calling of God are without repentance. God called Abraham. 
Come, leave everything to a land I will show. You see that land? God will show Abraham. To them and I seed, shall I give the promise? He did the same thing to Isaac, said the same thing to that calling and those gifts of grace. God cannot repent from them. They are without repentance. So, let Abraham's children do all they like. <laughs> let the Israelites misbehave all they like. Here's, here's the declaration. All Israel will be saved. Israel is just doing flexing. They don't have a say in the matter. Because the calling of their forefathers that they are holding on to while missing the Messiah, me, the Messiah, will honor my calling upon their forefathers and they all will be saved. They all will be saved. Keep going. <laughs> For God's gift and his call can never be withdrawn. 30. Once you Gentiles were rebels against God, but when the people of Israel rebelled against him, God was merciful to you instead. Now, they are the rebels. And God's mercy has come to you so that they too, through you, will share in God's mercy. 32. For God has imprisoned everyone in disobedience. God. That's the same thing Paul says in Galatians. That the Lord kept all of us in chains. So that by faith, those who I believe will be saved. God in his mercy has imprisoned, in his grace, imprisoned all of us. You have to need it to wait to come to you. If you... If you're, if you're free, like the guys were saying, yeah, well, we're free, you've never been born. Yeah. No, you're bound. Now you need to be freed. <laughs> Don't you? So this answers the question, if Jesus didn't have a problem traveling through Samaria, this is why when it took a while and the apostles were not making a headway, Philip enters Samaria. Acts 8, and starts to preach Christ. Don't forget that in John 4, what you are seeing will end in the fact that Samaria believed Christ from Christ. So when Philip went in there and starts to preach Christ, Philip, yes, Philip was not introducing a new concept. Jesus had walked this ground. <laughs> Jesus had walked that ground. So Philip comes and is like, yeah, that Christ. Remember him? That Christ. Because many, not they, many believed. Both from the woman's witness and from Jesus' own words. So Samaria at the time of Philip was not exactly virgin territory to the gospel. Jesus had walked it. So Philip knew instinctively outside Israel, where are we? outside these Jews, where are we going? Samaria. <laughs> Jesus has been there. So Jesus traveling through Samaria is not the issue. It's not, there's nothing strange. But there's something interesting about that narrative. The timing. He times his journey such that he will arrive there at the time where a woman will come there. That's what is not random. That's what is different. But Jesus traveling through Samaria is, we've established that, have we not? We have? Yeah, he, he, that's his route, he travels. Travels Samaria. But then, 
The timing is different. He arrives in Sikar. Verse 5, right? Jacob's well is there. Genesis 33, 18 to 19. Jacob's well is there. There's no record in the Bible of Jacob building a well or digging a well. John 4 is the only place where it's mentioned Jacob's well is there. And that's the problem again because theologians try to discredit it. If Jacob dug a well, how come we don't see it anywhere in the Old Testament? And that's a valid question. But you see, the fact that scripture didn't say some things doesn't mean scripture didn't say it. It's just diligent Bible study. And when you're studying the scriptures, don't leave your brains at home. Yeah. Can I shock you? In Bible study like this, do you know what you need the most? Your mind. Not so much your spirit. Assimilation is a mind thing. See, the problem is we are very, we like metaphysical things. We like, you know, abstract. Oh, be spiritual. What does that mean? Be spiritual actually means have a sharp mind. Because it's your mind that is renewed to prove his will. It's your mind that is renewed. That you, we transform Romans 8 to, by the renew of your mind, Romans 12 to, renew of your mind, that you may prove that you may grasp, that you may lay hold of, that you may comprehend that which is his good, perfect and acceptable will. Where does it happen? In your mind. So when you come for Bible studies, don't leave your brain at home. It's your brain you need. Because the word I'm teaching you now, it has always been in you and you didn't know it. How is the word in you? By the spirit that is in you. What does the spirit in you do? Teaches you all things. So as far as God's word is concerned, how many things do you know? All things you just don't know because it never reached your mind. <laughs> it has always been in your spirit because your spirit is his spirit. And no one knows the mind of a man except the spirit of that man which is in him. So no one knows the mind of God except the spirit of God which is in him. But we have been given to us the spirit not of this world but of God. So that we might know what? The mind of God. You still did not know it. Why? Your own mind was not renewed. So in Bible study what is most crucial sir? Your mind. So, uh, Bible study is not for dropouts. No, 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 no. No, no. It sharpens your mind. Diligent Bible study. You are a dangerous person. You are a dangerous IQ. Your human IQ sharpens like crazy if you devote time to orthotomio, rightly dividing. The word of truth. If you give time, try it. Spend five, six hours a week at a stretch, sitting down and journeying with the word. This scripture, oh, when he said wilderness, what what does it what's the cross reference? Oh, this is what that scripture meant when that scripture said, and then light bulbs everywhere. Whenever you're in a street, whenever you're in a difficult point in life, that principle of light bulbs. You will not hear a diligent Bible student 
Say, I'm, I'm confused. I don't know what to do. It's, it's not possible. You see too many pathways. Too many, too many pathways. Too many pathways. Too many pathways. Don't mess with Bible study. Genesis 33, 18 to 19. Jacob's well was there. Sikar. Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem. That is Samaria. Sikar is in Shechem, which is in the region of Samaria, which is in the land of Canaan. When he came from Padan Aram and he pitched his tent, please pay attention to this carefully. He pitched his tent in the city. Hmm? Next verse, 19. And he bought the parcel of land where he had pitched his tent. From the children of Hamor, Shechem's father, for 100 pieces of money. Again, there, that scripture, 100 pieces of money, just means for an undisclosed or unverifiable or unquantifiable amount of money. Yeah, there's no definitive value for how much he paid. Okay? So the measurement actually changes. Some people say shekel, some people say decal, some people say all kinds of stuff. It basically is better translated for an unverifiable or unstipulated amount of money. Right? Sometimes he uses that. I'm not sure if it's a hyperbole that's used there, but too. It's a figure of speech that's used there. Or an oxymoron or something like that. I can't remember one of them. But is that clear? Okay, and he bought for an undisclosed amount of money, Joshua 24.32. You see Jacob buys that, right? From the sons of Hamon. Joshua 24.32. Joshua 24. The bones of Joseph. Joseph is the son. Hmm? Which the children of Israel had brought up out of Egypt. They buried where? In the plot of ground where Jacob had bought from the sons of Hamon, the father of Shechem, for 100 pieces of silver, and which had become an inheritance for the children of Joseph. That's the land we're talking about now. Jacob's well is there. Jesus is by that well. A well is a source of water. Water is symbolic of life. Whenever, and so we see Jacob's, again, the arguments are very interesting. Jacob, there's no place in Genesis that suggests that Jacob built a well. Abraham built a well. Isaac built wells. Even opened up the wells that Abraham, his father, built before he built his own. But there's no record of Jacob building a well. So how is that well authentic? Well, a well, well, a well is symbolic of a place, a source of water. Water is symbolic of life. In Bible times, even till today, if anyone got to a place, now you saw in Genesis 33, Jacob got to a place, pitched his tent, bought the land. If anybody was going to start a settlement or a colony, the first thing they look for is a water source. Therefore, on the strength of pure intellect and on the strength of rightly divine the word of truth that lets us know that that land, Jacob bought it. That land, Jacob pitched his tent, which is to say Jacob lived there. For a period of time to the point where he, even Joseph's bones were buried there. Then if there was a settlement there that Jacob started, it is logically plausible that the very first thing Jacob did was to dig a well. Problem solved. Problem solved. So the scriptures say, and Jacob dug a well. No. But the scriptures say it, yes. Because his father Isaac, everywhere he went, he dug a well. 
And so Jacob buys the land where this well is. Jacob actually owned it from the sons of Hammon. And he pitched his tent there. And then he dug a well. He dug a well. Dug a well. So, Jacob digs a well, which means that he brings life to the area. Because water is symbolic of life. Mm. Most of those wells were, were spring, you know, under, most of those wells in, in Israel are underwater spring wells. I think you have a few in, you have a few in Cross River State. We have underground springs. They're not surface. They just run under the surface of the water and then they eventually feed a well. Spring is important. We'll come to that shortly. So if this was a water sprung well, then it will imply that Jacob was their spring of life. Because he brought water that sprung life in the area. But now Jesus is by Jacob's well. I've established that is Jacob's well. <laughs> Jesus is by Jacob's well and Jesus is weary. Verse 6. From his journey. Which is weird. Wearied, the word is not just tired. Like you have been traveling from Ugeb. You know, to hear you're tired. That's understandable. But the word is kopaio. K-O-P-I-A-A. Kopaio. K-O-P-I-A-O. Kopaio. And it means depleted, exhausted, and worn out. The suggestion of this is that Jesus was dying from hunger and thirst. Now that is what is strange. It's not just, oh, I've been traveling. I'm tired. Because here, ladies and gentlemen, is the problem. It is normal for people traveling over a distance to be tired collectively. No. Jesus is the only one dying. His disciples have even gone to buy him food. Okay, who got it? Because if we all are traveling from Ugeb, and we've got, we all should be tired in, in similar measure. Not that we'd have traveled that long, let's say 40, km, 40 miles. Yeah, Ugeb all the way here and then there's some of us that are fit enough to go back and go and buy food that shows how strange it is that all of a sudden Jesus is fainting like and his disciples are living by the well hopefully maybe someone will give him water let's go and look for food and buy food our master is dying. Let us go and buy food to save him. Let's hope he doesn't die before we come back because we dropped him by Jacob's well. Our father's well. Jesus' disciples were Jews. 
Jacob was their father too. Let's leave him by Jacob's well. Hopefully water from the well might sustain him and keep him alive long enough until we bring food to feed him so that he doesn't die. Jesus was spent. The next thing to do after that junction is either eat or die. Why are you the only one in that position, Jesus? Why are you the only one in that position? Why were you the first person to die on the cross? Two other men who didn't trek, who didn't have stamina as much as you. You traveled all of Israel on your feet. That means you are a tough guy. You are a carpenter. You are a tough guy. Of the three guys on the cross, if anybody should die last, it should be you. Excuse me, sir. Why did you die first? They came to the one. He was alive. They broke his legs to kill him. Came to the other. He was alive. They broke his legs to kill him. They came to you to break your legs. You were already dead. What explains why he died first is what explains why everybody is okay. Jesus is dying by a well. Why are the other disciples not dying like you are? You are coming from the same place. But they are so strong that they have gone to look for food. To feed a dying Jesus. I don't get it. Because it's there in verse 8, isn't it? John 4 and 8. But his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. So they left Jesus alone. It was that serious. Kopayo. Was that serious? Jesus was dying of hunger and thirst. The same person who said, come to me all year. That hunger. And they shall be filled. Matthew 6. Blessed are they who hunger and thirst after righteousness. He's dying of hunger and thirst. And people went to save him. And the people that went to save him left him by a place where they thought he might be saved. Jacob's well. It's Jacob's that built. Jacob built this well. Jacob dug it. Water from this well. Save Jesus from dying. <laughs> and there's nothing to draw water from Jacob's well. Verse 11. When John falls, when I call the verse, just put it up. Because the woman that comes to him says to him, Sir, <laughs> you have nothing to draw with. And this well is very deep. So it's a deep well. There is no pail to draw water from the well. Jesus is dying of hunger and thirst. This well had kept the Samaritans alive. It was a source of life. It sprung from Jacob, a man like them. 
a man like them. Jacob gave them what he had. He drank for me and his family and like I said in verse 12, they died. And Hebrews 11 said, these all died. Drank from it himself, his sons and livestock. He left. He died somewhere else actually. He was buried in Machpelah's cave. So clearly this water wasn't life. Just like that bread wasn't life. So they kept him by Jacob's well, but Jacob's well just ministers death. And Jesus came to minister life by death. So Jesus didn't come to survive. He didn't come to stay alive. He came to die. So what you're seeing in, in John 4 is a foreshadowing of Jesus' entire mission. And Peter getting up and saying, don't say things like that. How can you die? You're too young. You're trying to save the Savior. Send her away. She's disturbing us. You're trying to protect the Savior. If all his money were given to the poor. Oh, what do you mean? A, a prostitute is, is touching your thing with her hair. And a lot of times we find ourselves in positions where we're trying to rationalize the salvation of God in Christ. We're trying to help God so that Jesus doesn't stumble. That's why we come into things like balance. Let's balance God. If he doesn't drink small water, he will die. Let's save Jesus. You can't tell them that there's grace. They will misbehave. Jesus died. The grace of God that brings salvation appeared to all men. He's now a man like you that appointed yourself. Don't give them too much grace. Too much grace is bad for your health. Let us, us, regulate the grace others like us have received. Yeah. Just as you, oh, you believe with all the grace, you spoil it. Because God that gave the grace is too foolish, foolish to manage his grace over your life that is greater than sin. God does not know what he's doing. How can God give you that much grace? No, God should give you. We, we are the ones that know how to manage the grace in church. So we constantly find ourselves in positions where we are speaking for Jesus. Protecting Jesus, defending Jesus, managing Jesus. We are the agent of Jesus. Anyway, Jesus was dying alone. Isn't that a symbol of what was about to come? It's by the well. He's dying alone. There's no disciples. There's no water. Deprivation, lack, hunger, separation, isolation. Then the Samaritan woman comes. With her water pot and clearly something to draw from the well. Jesus speaks to her first before she said anything. She's a Samaritan, she's a woman. That's two problems. Even, an, even a Jewish woman should not be found talking with a rabbi. How much more a 
Samaritan woman. Those are two major things combined. Samaritan woman in a Jewish world is a lot of problem. And Jesus says to the woman, Give me a drink. Some people translate it, give me water, but that's not what Jesus asked for. NLT. Please give me a drink. TPT. Seven. Jesus said to her, give me a drink of water. So they now add water. That's not what Jesus asked. The message. He said, give me a drink. Would you give me a drink of water? Amplified. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. Next slide. What does it say? It doesn't say of water. It doesn't say give me water. It says give me a drink. Was he asking her for water? She's a Samaritan. She's the epitomization of sin, carnality, deprivation, rejection, everything God does not want sons to be, but everything he acknowledges that they are. She's an outcast, she's a reject, she's a prostitute par excellence. And she's walking to the well where she has always drawn water, but always had to come back. And Jesus is dying by a well. And he looks at her and he says, you may drink. Did he ask for water or did he ask to drink of her? Her essence, her sin, her filth. For God made him knew no sin to become sin. For God has laid upon him iniquity of us all and hold up what you call the cup of God's wrath. What did it contain? The sin, the wickedness of the entire world that somebody would have to drink to satisfy the righteous wrath of God. That was the cup he said, I do not want to drink this cup. Let this cup pass by me. And he says to a totally sinful, deprived woman, I can drink you. Give me a drink. Come to me all ye. And labor and a heavy laden. And I will, I will give you rest. Give me a drink. Let me, let me drink of you. 
He didn't ask for water. He was by well. He couldn't be asking for water from Jacob's well. Just in the same vein, he couldn't be asking for manna that amounted to nothing. Jesus always ate, but you never see on record that he ate where he fed them bread. He gave them, he turned, he multiplied the bread, he gave them the bread. He didn't eat, he said, I am the bread. You will eat. You're not eating. You will, you will eat. He didn't eat the bread that he gave them to eat. He will not be by Jacob's well and be the living water and ask for water from Jacob's well and actually drink it. No, he came to give water. Not to drink water from Jacob's well. Sometimes we're trying to help God, like we talked about last week, and try to get God to allow us to do something and contribute to it and help Him to help us. After all, heaven helps those. The Bible says, and Jesus will not have fulfilled His work if He did not drink of us. Philippians 2, 7 and 8. If Jesus did not drink of us, if he did not partake of us, our sinful nature, our humanity, he made himself of no reputation. Taking the form of a born servant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. He had to drink of us. He had to partake of our humanity. It's not just us. We're partaking of his divinity because he first, he first partook of our humanity. We are drinking of him because he first humbled himself to drink of us. Give me a drink. She's perplexed in verse 9 and she's like, hey, you, Jew, man, asking me, woman, Samaritan, for a drink. You, Lord Jesus, righteous, holy, asking me for my sins so you can cleanse me, my God. No, I will, I will, I will stain you. You haven't handled dirt like this before, God. No, and you hear a lot of people will tell you, you don't know how much wrong I've done. Uh-uh. You don't know how much. God is not mad at me. Wait till he hears my resume. Me. Come on to me, all that are heavy and heavy. No, I'm too heavy. I'm, I'm too heavy laden. I'm too heavy laden. I understand you're sweet and everything, but nah. Not, not for bad girls like me. You. Jew. Man. I mean, decent looking guy. You're dying and all, but yeah. Ask me for a drink. Oh, please. Uh, me, I'm, I'm a Samaritan. I mean, you remember where you are, Sika? Yeah? Just in case, I know you're faint and you're almost, you know, passing out and everything, but, you know, can you see this? Yeah? See this? 
You're in Samaria. And I'm a woman and I'm a Samaritan. I will defile you. The moment you touch me or anything to do with me, you are defiled. The moment you touch my water vessel, you are defiled. The moment you have anything that associates you with me, I, you will be messed up and I, I cannot bring myself to stain you, nice Jewish looking guy, with my Samaritan feminine filth. Why are you asking me for a drink? Why are you doing this yourself? Why are you asking, asking me for a drink? 2 Corinthians 6.14 Jesus had no, Jews had no part with Samaritans just like light had no part with darkness. That's the paradox. 2 Corinthians 6.14 Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers, right? For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? Jew and Samaritan. What communion has light with darkness? Now, you know, okay, I, you know the Samaritans knew the scriptures. You know they, they had one of their beef, I didn't mention to you, one of their beef as well, is when they came back from, from exile, they produced their own Torah. Yeah, they copied their own. That priest that was um, in Second Kings 17 that was made the priest of their temple was the son-in-law of Sambalat. Yeah, that was Sambalat. You know Sambalat? Sambalat's daughter's husband. The Sambalat that actually made him priest. <coughs> it's, it was very, so you had your own Torah. So they knew the law. They understood light and darkness. They understood that they were rejects. I wrote here that she also knows that she's a messed up woman on on other terms, is already too damaged to be parleying with a good man. Even if she were not Samaritan, she had not said it yet, but she knew she had been with five men. So she had already a terrible self-worth and low self-esteem thing going for her. Don't, don't ask me stuff. And she was trying to protect Jesus from herself, from her filth, from her mess, trying not to stain Jesus, stain Kacha, Jesus. That's Jesus, you know. Sting catcher. You swim with him, you come out, all the filth, he took it. You know that thing you put when you're doing laundry in the washing machine? It just takes all the stain. Everything comes out clean. The stain catcher is there, and all the stains on your fabric. That's what it's called, the stain catcher. You just add it into a washing machine. And it literally, as the washing machine runs, every stain on the dress, it sucks all the stains onto it. And everything comes out clean. The stain catcher is the one that has all the stains. Yeah. And you're afraid of staining the stain catcher. She wanted to spare him the trouble of being contaminated. Save him from her mess. Like us today, sometimes I'm, I'm, I'm messed up. and It's not time to disturb God. It's not time to disturb the church. That's when. Jesus then replies her instantly in verse 10. If you knew who was asking you for a drink. If you knew the gift of God and who, was, who says to you, give me a drink. So clearly, this was not about water. If you knew the gift of God and who was asking you for a drink, you would have asked him. And he, it's he that will give you water. That means Jesus was not asking her for water. 
if you knew the gift of God and he was asking you, give me a drink, you would ask him for water. Living water. Jeremiah 2.13. Not H2O. No, John 4 is more than, more than water. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and they have dug wells. Broken, it's a cistern, it's a water reservoir. Water reservoir built into the ground or dug out from the ground or hewn, that's the word, hewn, cut out from the ground. And they have forsaken the fountain of living water and hewn themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold. And that does not suggest that the actual cistern will have no water. Don't imagine an empty cistern. Imagine a cistern that has water that gives no life. Which is what is present at Jacob's well. A cistern that holds no water. Jesus could not have been asking her for water from a cistern that holds no water. The woman quickly asks, how are you going to get that living water out of this well? Because she has not, she has not reconciled the two. Verse 11. This well does not have that water. There's no water here. It holds no water. That's what Jeremiah said. You have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? Because she was still looking at living water in terms of the well. And then she asks that, and before she even waits for an answer, she asks her next bombshell question, which is what gets us to where we're going. Are you greater than our father Jacob? Who drank this well and died, basically. You're talking about living water. And this is all John's gospel has been trying to show. That this word, Christ, is greater. Does that make sense? Now, contextually, we see a, shall I say, juxtapose between Jesus now and Jacob. At this point, Jacob becomes an anti-type of Jesus. Even though in another context, he's a type of grace. In this, in this context now, this is, don't think of Jacob as grace in this context. Think of Jacob as man. Contextually. Is an anti-type because the water Jacob is giving is water that is not bringing life. Jacob's well is a cistern that holds no water. It is deep. It holds no water. That's why their fathers drank it. Jacob himself drank it. Where, where is he? Your fathers ate the bread in the wilderness. Where are they? Are you getting the narrative? So Jacob is an antitype in this point. Jesus comes and Jesus replaces Jacob. What does Jacob's, what does Jacob's name mean? What does a supplanter do? What does supplant mean? It means to supplant. If you're uprooting, it is uprooting and planting something in its place. Right? So he's called a supplanter because it appears as though he stole the birthright. 
That was grace. It's not of works. So it looks like he stole it. Yeah, supplanter. But now in where Jacob meets Jesus, Jacob is supplanted. The supplanter <laughs> meets his supplanter. That's where Jacob's name goes full circle. Because he took his thing, great. Now you have built a well and you are the father of everybody here. Or so you think. Enjoy that status until the sun comes and supplants you from thinking or feeling like you are the giver of life because of one well that holds no water and gives no life. Jacob, come away. A greater than Jacob is here. Because he's the water of life. Isaiah 55 and 1. Oh, I can see the end. Isaiah 55 and 1. Oh! Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come buy it. Yes, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. God never intended to charge. Oh, hallelujah. Oh, that's great news. He never intended to charge. It's not Gehazi. Run and say, my master said. John 7, 37 and 38. I'm taking my time with this so that you're getting it. John 7, 37 and 38. On the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his belly, out of his heart, will flow rivers. So the water of life showed up at Jacob's well to shut it down. Not to drink from it. No, sir. The river of life showed up at a dead well to shut it down because it was a cistern that held no water. Nah, it didn't. That's why she said herself, Jacob drank it. His sons drank it. See, they're, they're, buried, they're buried here. Livestock, they're buried here. So Jesus came to supplant Jacob. And his centuries of feeling like he gave any sort of life, even in his death. Because he's the water of life. He's the water Jacob longed to drink of. <laughs> yeah, he's the one. They all died not having received the promise. Hebrews 11. He's the water Jacob longed to drink for. So I wrote here, each time those guys drank water, they needed water. It, that's why she will come back. Each time they drank water, they wanted water. The end of their drinking was thirst. The end of their eating was hunger. 
Every time they drank wine, they wanted more. Every time they ate bread, they wanted more. Every time they drank water, they wanted more. Because those were not the ones that gave life. So in verse 13 and 14, Jesus responds to her. John 4, 13 and 14. John 4. Jesus answered and said to her, whoever drinks of this water, this water from this system that holds no water, Whoever drinks from this water will thirst again. That's why you keep coming back here because you're looking for something here that doesn't exist here. You, you're, you're coming to the faith of Jacob, but Jacob's faith was not in this well because there's no water here. So you continue to come back here. Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall... Go back to verse, verse 13. Jesus answered and said to her, whoever drinks of this, this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give to him, the guy's dying. And he's not requesting for water from the well. That's not what he was drinking. And you're looking at a dying guy telling you whatever drink, drinks of this this water will thirst again whatever drinks of the water and, and picture picture the samaritan woman water you will give me i will not thirst again can you see yourself and this was the standard response to every time Jesus offered salvation. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? He saved others. He cannot save himself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. A standard narrative. You, son of God, your sins are forgiven. Who are you to forgive sins? Okay, which would have been easier for you? For me to say, rise up, take your bed and walk. Or for me to say, okay, just so that you can know the son of man has power to forgive sins. Rise up, take up your bed and walk. Every time the Savior showed up, he looked like he needed saving. Every time. Can you imagine the paradox? Somebody dying. Water. If I drink this one, you'll die. You'll thirst again. One I will give you. Isaiah 12 33. You will not thirst again. So you see, in salvation, you must go past the medium and look at the value of what is offered. So Jesus says, therefore, with joy, with joy, not with a water bottle, not with a pail, not with a guga, not with a water pot, with joy, with joy, with joy, will you draw water from the wells? That's where water is. The well of salvation. You don't need a bucket to draw. Joy. Water is not life like it is looked at to be. Life is not life until it does not cease. It cannot be said to be life-giving if what it gives ceases. It cannot. John 6, 49 to 51. It cannot be. We read it earlier. 
how you know his life is that it is perpetual in its existence. It doesn't cease. John 6, 49, your fathers ate the manna. Okay, we dealt with water in John 4. Yeah? We dealt with bread in John 5 because that's where he changed, he multiplied bread and fed all of them. And then in 6, we're dealing with this. And says, your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and are dead. Keep going. This is the bread which comes up from heaven that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, I've explained that to you earlier. He will live forever. So how you know you have encountered life is that it cannot stop. And that's why you cannot lose it. Take your seats. Springing forth to eternal life, verse 14. John 4, 14. I was waiting to get here. Springing forth, alomenoi. A-L-L-O-M-E-N-O-U. Alomenoi. A-L-L-O-M-E-N-O-U. Alomenoi. That's springing forth. It means to bubble forth, to leap up, to spring up, to gush. If you drink this water, it will spring up into eternal life. Alomenoi has never been used for inanimate objects in the scripture. Alomenoi only refers to a movement of the spirit. It's only the spirit that can cause you to spring up and bubble up and gush and spring. So when Jesus says to her, the water you will drink, it will well up in you or spring up to eternal life. It went from being inanimate to being a being. Holy Spirit. Do you understand what I just said? So show us verse 13 and 14 again. You'll understand. I'll know me know. Jesus answered and said to her, John, John 4, and said to her, whoever drinks of this water will drink again. Will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain so you never drink it and be looking for water again that's why you say you have to be careful when you use the word revival as a believer say you need reviving jesus said if you drink this water you will never test again because that water once you drink it the water becomes water it becomes in you a fountain a well spring a fountain of water springing up alomenoi into everlasting life bubbling forth, springing forth, gushing. And this, these verbs are only descriptive of a being. Not of a thing. Alomenoi has never described a thing. Alomenoi describes the movement of a being. The being. The spirit. The spirit is the water. I've showed you John, John 7, 37 and 38, right? We've gone there three times. Let's go there one more time. John 7, 38, 39, and then I'll give you the next verse. He who believes in me, as the scripture says, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water, 39. But this, this living water, he spoke concerning what? Whom those believing in him would receive. For the Holy Spirit was not yet given. Because Jesus was not yet glorified. 37. The water that I will give you. Will become in you a fountain. 
of water springing up, welling up, gushing. Something which only a being can do. And that being is the spirit. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. 38. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. This he spoke concerning the spirit. Give us TPT or NLT in verse 39. 39. Jesus was prophesying that believers were being prepared to receive. NLT or the message. Are you getting this? When he said, when he said living water, who would be given to everyone believing in him? So when she was dealing with H2O, Jesus was saying, it's not about H2O. It's about pneumatos, pneumatos. The spirit of God, the water that once you receive, you will never thirst again and you will never die. This he spoke concerning the spirit. That's the water of life. You don't find it at Jacob's well. No, there is no water at Jacob's well. It's a cistern that holds no water. For this he spoke concerning the spirit. So the woman recognizes in verse 15 that uh, it is not the dying Jesus that is in need. <laughs> it is she who is alive and has a water pot. She's the one that is dying. It's not the faint Copio, hungry, famished, almost dying Jesus. That is the problem now. That dying Jesus is dying to give you spirit which had not been given because he had not yet been glorified. So it's actually his dying that was profitable for her. Not her water profitable for him. And she said, okay, okay. Give me this water. So that I may not thirst or come here to draw. So she understood that a faint, gasping, parched, hungry, depleted Jesus was exactly what she needed. Oh, the foolishness of the cross. Oh, the foolishness of the sacrifice of Jesus. And she began to understand. And like we, we look at today and we realize that the man that, who had been whipped, spat on, stripped, mangled, insulted, mocked, was exactly all we needed. That was exactly what the doctor ordered. You didn't need a beautiful Jesus, you would not have helped you. You didn't need a handsome Jesus, you would not have helped you. You didn't need a put together Jesus, you would not have helped you. He needed to be mangled, he needed to be persecuted, he needed to be spat on, he needed to be beaten, he needed to be rejected of men and despised by God. He needed to be isolated and forsaken so that you will be accepted. That dying Jesus is exactly what the woman who had the yam and the knife needed. She had the edge. She wasn't weary. She had a water pot to draw. She had the upper hand it appeared. But no, she was the one who was dying. Because she would always come to the well where there was no water. To get water that would make her thirst again. And the water of life 
who was there and clearly was not asking for water from Jacob's well that gave no life because the life he was giving her was the spirit was there and Jesus says to her go and bring your husband now you want living water deal with you face up to yourself you know the spirit of God you're going to receive calls you into a marriage but um, but you're currently bound to someone so what's the level of your commitment to who you're currently bound to because you can't receive my spirit if you are married to someone else the law only states that that can happen when your husband dies and you're discharged of her that's what Paul argues in Romans so you you were ready for living water go go and check your allegiances bring who you're committed to go and bring your husband it gives her a chance to confront herself and to determine if what she's involved in is worth it or if she's ready to switch allegiances it just tells her go and call your current union go and think who, who you think your savior is Bring it, let me see. Who's your covering? Who's, who's your husband? What about security you think you have right now? Because you would even not be looking for living water if you had a proper husband. That's the, con that's the connection. Because the husband man nourishes. The husband man gives life. The husband man protects and, and he causes his wife to be conformed to his image. Husbands, love your wives as Christ also loved the church that he might present her to himself a bride without spot or blemish or wrinkle or any such thing. Even so ought men to love their wives. Marriage is a cleansing program from which the husband, as he gets to his wife to conform, cleanses her to present her to him in his image. So the woman is a reflection directly of her husband. So you are ready for living water now, but who is responsible for this? I'm bringing. Who have you placed faith in? At this place of exchange, I want to see him. Go and call your current union and bring what. And she answers beautifully. I have no husband. Instantly in that period, her leprosy goes all white. She's covered from head to toe in her realization that she cannot help herself. Leviticus 13, if only one part of you is leprous, you will be rendered unclean before the priest. But if all of you is covered white, you'll be rendered clean before the priest. And she says to him, just as I am, without one plea, I have no husband. I have no covering. I have no one to stand for me at the gate. I have no one to speak over me. I have no one that redeemed me. I have no one that ransoms me. I have no one that is purifying me. I, I need this water. I, I have no husband. 
That's why I'm this messed up and that's why I keep coming to this damn well. I have no husband. And Jesus says, you, you have answered well. <laughs> you have answered well. That's, that's the right answer at the right time. You have answered well. Because just as this well is here and has no water, it's the same way you have been with men and none of them is your husband. Five. Men. And grass in the Hebrew from the word aner, which just means a male human being. So it's actually erroneously translated husbands. It says you have had five men. That's what it actually means. And the sixth one you are with now is not your husband. So in that you spoke truly. You have been with five men and grass. Aner from the word aner, which is a male. Being with five. Current one you're with is six. And even this one is not your husband. How many senses do you have? Call them. Sight. And we walk which we walk by faith and not by sight. Smell, taste, feeling, and tasting. Five senses. You have, you have explored life in your sensualities. You have done everything that you can do as a human. You have been with five honors. You have been with five men. You have explored humanity. You have followed your senses. You have worked. And as hard as you have worked, you still come to this well to draw. I'm very careful with biblical numerology. It doesn't it's not always a thing, but when it is, it is. It's not always a thing. But our sensualities, our efforts, sight, hearing, tasting, touching, smelling, and all of those failed her. All five. By six, she's a lost cause. Six is the number, they say, of man. Man was made on the sixth day. and Six is always a precursor to something that will be perfected. Always. Six is always a precursor of something that will be perfected. Man was made on the sixth day and after man on the sixth day, what came after man, after humanity, what followed was rest. So day six was the day of man, was the day of humanity. Day seven was the day of the sun. Shabbat, rest. So six would be the number of humanity, the number of limitation, the number of something has to change from here. Six would be the height of everything that fails. Six times they went round Jericho, nothing happened. Six days. Every day they went around Jericho, nothing happened. On the seventh day, they went around six times, nothing happened. In John 2, there were six water ports with oil. Ruth is there, and when the first time she encounters Boaz, Boaz gives her six ephahs, six measures of barley. 
and the measure of barley was so big as much as 20 kilos so imagine the weight that Ruth was given when we're told to lay aside every weight she had six heavy measures to carry because she was limited and that was Boaz thinking he was doing her a favor by giving her more than she gleaned but if only she becomes Boaz's wife she would not need to carry this weight she will come into rest because now she is the first lady of the vineyard she doesn't need to carry load even though it's grain she doesn't need to work for grain and take it home with her because she just came as a widow to glean and she has six efforts of barley that Boaz measures to her she has to walk it all the way to where she's coming from but if she were married to him she would be in rest so what was coming after six measures of barley was rest and I can go on and on and work the number six seraphim six beings golden lampstand a stair six branches seven completes them and so here she was with number six her failure her humanity her end of the road ready for number seven ready for rest and in those few words you have had five men the sixth one is not your husband that's all Jesus said. Husband's coming. Not everything you have tried, not everything you've fallen over, not, not where you are now. None of it counts. This one, this one, where you are now, you are just giving up. This is why she said, that's why she said, come see a man that told me all I ever did. Excuse me, how can, if five men was about five men, how would she interpret it as all she ever did? Why would she say, come and see a man who told me all I ever, all things I ever did. How is five men, they have not been your husband, the sixth one, how is that, how does that constitute all you ever did, if not that Jesus meant more, and she heard exactly what he meant. If not that she heard that, yes, my senses, my efforts, my, my labor, my toiling, my, everything about my humanity and all my trying to be loved and to be accepted and forgiven. But, but no, six men later, I have no husband. Six months, six men later, I have no place of rest. Six, six men later, I have no salvation. Six men later, I'm the talk of the city. And not for good. I have no husband. Come see. He told me everything. He told me my struggle. He told. She heard everything in that statement. You have had five men. And yes, she may indeed have had five men. Literally. But it meant a lot more. Five men. And that's like us. Come see a man. All she ever did. The six men represent all she ever did before she came into the day of rest. Before she married Jesus, the seventh and final and real husband. And that, that's where her completion was. That's where, that's where her rest was. The conversation switches to the issue of worship. I'll go past that. 
I'll go past that. Jesus is there. By verse 27, after the finished worship talk, 27, Jesus is still fainting by the well. All this conversation. So he didn't come there fainting to drink from Jacob's well. He came there as all things to all men because only a fainting man will arrest the attention of the Samaritan woman. This was why God drew away his energy and left those of his disciples. Because this work would be the work of the Son. This was why two men on the cross stayed alive and had to be killed on the same kind of cross as Jesus. But Jesus committed his life into the Father's hand and the Father took it. This was why. It was by a supernatural agenda of God that Jesus was that weary. It wasn't normal. 27 disciples come back. And they said to him, Master, please, eat. So he was still there. He marveled that he talked to the woman, 28. Come on. The woman left her water pot. So she didn't even give him the water. Went into the city and said to the men, Come see a man who told me all I ever did. 31. I'm done. In the meantime, his disciples urged him, saying, Rabbi, eat. Now here is that man again. Picture him. Who can picture him by the well? Can picture him? And they say him, Rabbi, please eat. Hear the dying man. Next verse. He said to them, I have food to, have food to eat. Of which you do not know. <laughs> because he just ate. Next verse, they, they, they said to one another, has anyone bought him anything to eat? Which is obviously not the case because he's still, they're famished. And then he answers them and said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. So he just ate. Don't worry about the food you brought. Don't worry about the water at Jacob's well. There's neither food for life, neither is there water in Jacob's well. That's not what we're talking about. These are inanimate things that... Don't carry any weight. I just ate 35. He goes into the harvest. Four months and come the harvest. He's dying. The city comes out and meets him there. Dying. Because he didn't eat. He didn't drink. Ate neither their food nor drank at Jacob's well. The city comes and meets him there and believes the word. Of a dying savior. Jesus went into them after they had, they had believed. Stayed in there for two days. You can assume then that he ate. Which would be tantamount to what? They none. Breaking bread with the believers. Not just eating with Samaritans. So if we, we can safely assume that in the two days he was with them, two batches of believers, first ones that believe by the well, based on the woman's word, 
and those that believed in the city based on his own word and he if he was there with them for two days then he definitely definitely he ate and if he ate he was there knowing he was breaking bread with believers not the food of samaritans not the food of jews not the food of the disciples and not water from jacob's well and even now he does not need saving he's the savior he doesn't need balancing he doesn't need feeling sorry for he doesn't need pitying he doesn't need you know you know how we stay now we we look at him and people sing songs that remind us of how he was on the cross next time you see jesus on the cross rejoice and celebrate no, he, the pictures of Jesus on the cross are not to make you feel bad. Oh, look at how they beat him. Like, for every lash, we're like, yes, Lord. Because he was either him or you. And you couldn't take it. So every time you see a picture of a dying Jesus, rejoice. He took your place. Only he had the capacity to. That's why we had to generate a human being of a different lineage. The Adamic nature could not handle the price that had to be paid. Couldn't have been pure enough. The Savior doesn't need saving. He stayed at the well dying from when he arrived till when he was done. It wasn't the water. There was no water at Jacob's well. It was a setup to paint a salvation picture. That's how deliberate of us God is. He doesn't need any external stimulation. He doesn't need any additive. I go back to what I said to you last week. You are complete in Him. He doesn't need help saving you. Certainly not your help. You can't help Him save you. He's got it covered all by Himself. And so the man is freaking out and thinking, this guy is going to die. All this thing he's saying. He will not even make it in, on time to give me this living water. <laughs> he would die. But he didn't. Until he died. He came to die. He showed pockets of it every now and then. Pockets of it. But he didn't die until he died. Because when he eventually died, he died and was done. And he screamed there, it is finished. Listen, settle in the fact that God's work in your life is deliberate. It's deliberate. You're not among those that he's uh, leaving the lantinine to come and save. He's done that already. Now you're the one who's living 99 and going to look for someone safe. You're the light of the world. But you, you're, you're in the fold. You, you, you can't go anywhere. You've been brought in. You have drank water that leads to life that would never be extinguished. That's what it means, welling up alumni, right? Welling up, you become, the water will give you, be, become a well springing forth to everlasting life of this he spoke of the spirit this is the water jesus came to offer because what happens to the flesh the letter it kills what gives life the spirit 
To be carnally minded is what? Death. To be spiritually minded is life and peace. He gave the water of life. You, 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 how many of you have the Spirit of God on your inside? Do you know what that means? You have a fountain of life springing to it, everlasting, like everlasting, everlasting. So you are of the ilk that cannot die. Because, like your pastor told you the other time, when you die, God will call unto the God in you. That's how God raised up Jesus from the dead. His spirit in Jesus. And once God calls forth to his spirit in you, life must have must must happen. So I woke up this morning. I, I don't know if I've said it, but I woke up this morning. I was very strong on my heart. Believers do not prepare to die. No. No, our salvation, the, we receiving forgiveness of sin, is all the preparation for death that we need. Yeah. We don't live as though we are afraid of and therefore hoping we can see death coming and prepare for it. Me being son of God is all the preparation for death. Let me die now, I'm good. Don't treat death like some, some hallowed incidents you must prepare for. Set your house in order. Say a prayer for. No, now. That's religion. When it's time to go, just go. Whether you saw it coming or not, just go. Because you see, that spirit in you that is a seal that cannot be unsealed is all the prep you need for dying, brother. Because when we get to that day, that seal. If you watch, have you watched any treasure hunt movies before? There's a, there's a particular lock or there's a particular seal or a particular key that they put in. So once you turn it, it doesn't matter if the place has been locked for 5,000 years. Once you put that thing in there and turn it, it will, it will crank open and life will respond. That is the guarantee of the water you have drank. Because that is the guarantee of the sin he has drank. Yeah. Yeah, before you drank of, don't forget, before you drank of him, he drank of you first. Yeah. Yes, yes, he drank of you first. He, he, he. Taking our sin, our cross, our shame. Taking. He took you first before you could have him. Yeah, that's the exchange. The exchange happens with him taking all you wear first. For you to become all he is. So if you are glorified now, it's because he took your, your despise. If you are accepted now, it's because he took your rejection. If you are whole now, it's because he took your stripes. If you are righteous now, it's because he took your shame. He drank of you first. So you could drink of him. And what the Lord does is forever. forever and that's the water that will spring forth unto eternal life do you understand it now even in death there will be a springing forth that's what paul alludes to even in death there will be a lomenoi 
if the spirit of he who raised up Christ from the dead dwells in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead will give life to your mortal body. How? By his water, his spirit living in you that wells up into a fountain of eternal life. And that's water you don't find at Jacob's well. So careful when you're praying that you don't get stuck praying to the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. They all died not having drank this. <laughs> and these were well diggers. They died seeking a city whose builder and founder is God that apart from us, they could not be made perfect. If Jacob were alive today, he would pray to the God of Alexander Victor. It's not me praying to the God of Jacob. Because God has manifested to us in a measure that Jacob longed to see and died not having obtained. In a manner that Moses longed to see and was refused and he put a veil over his face and came down sad. Because he couldn't handle the realities of the coming Christ that we handle now. So he showed up in a vision on the Mount of Transfiguration but right now we would school Moses in things concerning Christ. Mm -hmm. Oh yes. Oh yes. Our reality is different. Because the supplanter has been supplanted by the Savior that didn't need saving. I've eaten bread that gives us life. I've drank water that ensures we live forever. It's the done deal. It's the done deal. I live forever. Not me. I, though I die, I shall yet live. I live forever. I have eternal life beyond probability. Out of my belly flows rivers of living water, a fountain. Just pray in the Holy Ghost for a few moments. Thank you for positioning yourself in, in places where we didn't even think we were at a disadvantage just so that you would reach us it's easy to want you when we are down and out it's more difficult to realize that we're helpless when we think we have it all figured out and all together it's in your love and mercy that you will drain yourself and become weary and end up at a well just when we would stroll by in our self-righteousness, in our efforts, in our self-conceitedness, in our mess, concealed sometimes behind a veil of life. And you will look past all of that and you will do whatever it took to reach us. And once you lay hold of us, you're committed to never letting us go. Because you, because you, you hate divorce. You hate it. You, you said till death do us part. And so once you have destroyed the power of death, and nothing can do us part. Because only death can do us part. But death 
cannot do us part because you destroyed the power of death. Death is the only criteria for which we can be part and you hate to part. So we have the assurance that as our husband, we are married to you forever. And even death cannot do us part because you destroyed death so it cannot part us. So what shall separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus can death. <laughs> yeah, death is mentioned among the things that cannot separate us. So we walk in the assurance that you have literally trekked and walked over mountains, valleys and rivers to meet us exactly where we needed you to meet us. And we're so glad and thankful for that. And we implore the same means to reach out to others. We do whatever it takes to teach the gospel. We do whatever it takes to preach the gospel. We do whatever it takes to learn the gospel. We do whatever it takes to practice the gospel. That's the pattern you've given to us. And Lord, we just thank you so much for your love. We thank you so much for forgiveness. Thank you so much for dying and dying and dying until you died. You kept showing us that's all you came to do, to, to die. To serve us, to drink of us, so that we might drink of you. Thank you that we are satisfied in you. You are more than enough for us. What you've done is what nothing else can take away from us. We thank you. We give you praise. Amen. Celebrate him. Yeah. Well, that's it for today's teaching. We trust it has been worth your time. For more of these messages from our stables, kindly subscribe to our teaching podcast at www.thebasileacommission.podbean.com or via the Podbean app on your mobile device. For inquiries and further information, kindly send us an email to info at thebasileacommission.org or find us on social media with the handles at the truth simply put or at whilethechurch. You can also send us an SMS, call us, or connect with us via WhatsApp on plus 234-70-881-8864. Finally, if you would like to give to support the work that we do, kindly follow the Patreon link in our podcast or contact our office for details. Thank you.